Hello there, welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny G. Today we're talking about UFC Fight Night Jan vs. Vachvili, also known as UFC Vegas 71. Coming up on Saturday, the 11th of March with a 3 p.m. Eastern start time. 13 total bouts on the card, no championships on the line, but this event will be in front of a live crowd. It's the UFC Fight Night event or UFC Vegas event, but not in the apex, will be a full live crowd. 13 total fights in the card, of course, no belt on the line. Main event's going to be Peter Yan, the former champion, versus Rob Dwashvili. We'll go over each fight, one fight at a time, working our way up all the way to the main event. Unfortunately, last week it ended our streak. We had five consecutive winning UFC events in a row, unfortunately, last weekend. Things fell off the rails. We were on the wrong side of a few things. It happens, but you know what? We're back now to getting back onto a winning streak. That winning streak is going to start this weekend with Peter Yan versus Vashvili in the main event. Let's jump into this card. Here we go. Moving up the card, next fight's going to be a flyweight battle. 125-pounders Tyson Nam, the American fighter via Hawaii, versus Bruno Silva, Brazilian. Before we get into the in-depth breakdown on this prelim card fight, first of all, let me point out that Nam is a veteran. This will be his 41st total combat sports fight. Guy's been around for a minute, kickboxing background, so on and so on. Silva, obviously younger, looking good recently, has some KO power. Money line is lined correctly. This fight is very close. It may end up being one of the closest fights on the entire card, even though it's early on in the fight card. We do like Silva to win, but it's hard to figure out how this happens. You want to say KO from the recent KOs? Okay, makes sense. Nam's only been finished twice in 40 fights so he's pretty durable silva's also durable nam's got what three straight knockouts the rubber beats the road here either the continuing of knockout streak happens so you could play that prop fight ends by knockout no one's gonna be mad at you for doing that or they're so evenly matched and both have good chins and we see ourselves in a 15 minute war with silva winning by decision that's our prediction but it's hard. It's not really matching up with all the math because, again, a lot of finishes from these guys recently. So why would we think it goes to decision? It reminds me a little bit of the Robovics fight last week. So Robovics versus Loic Radzabov, right? We had picked Robovics to win by decision. It was a bold pick considering he had a bunch of finishes and he was, you know, underdog the whole nine. It gets close to being a finish a few times, but it does go the full distance. And I think that's in part because of the caliber of the fighters. Both guys are of that ilk. You know, they're about that life. Nam, my man, I want to always say Vietnam, <laughs> my man Tyson Nam, he, uh, he's about that life, okay, he enjoys himself in the octagon, this fight very well goes, you know, over round and a half, goes to round three, and probably goes the full distance, anyway, I'm getting long-winded, let me get into the details here, Mr. Nam is 21, 12, and 1 overall, if you combine his amateur bouts and a few of the kickboxing stuff, that's where we're getting that number of 40 on Tapology. this will be his 41st total bout, if you go way back now, you include some of his Muay Thai stuff and kickboxing, has over 100 fights. There's no question. So the guy is the consummate veteran. He's based out of Portland, 39 years old in five months, will be turning 40 this year. Slight dog in this spot at around plus 125, plus 130 range, more or less a pick him. 5'7 in height will have a 3-inch advantage over Silva, and a 68-inch reach will about to have a 2-inch reach advantage as well over Silva. And for Nam, he's out of sports lab. As for Mr. Silva, who goes by the Bulldog 12-5-2 overall, excuse me, 2-2-1 two, two in his last five fights, slight favorite here. Out of Phoenix now, but originally from Brazil, about to be 33, 5'4 in height, 66-inch reach, and out of fight-ready MMA. According to Tapology, looks like Nam is the favorite, getting 68% of the votes. Not surprised. He is a veteran. He's a he's a smooth operator. We like him. Doing film review on him was fun. He uh, he genuinely enjoys what he's doing and goes to the cage and he just kind of guy who feels like he's at home.
catch my drift. Okay, looking at the write-up we have in this two, on these two fighters here, we like Silva by decision. Nam, as we mentioned before, big-time veteran, started MMA professionally in 2006, yeah, that long ago, and then prior to that, had a decorated kickboxing Muay Thai career, tore his ACL a few years ago, but then bounced back in the fight after that, after a tough you know, recovery, ACLs are a 9-12 to 12 month injury, he talked about the loneliness and going through it. He bounced back and then knocks out Odie Osborne. That film link's available in our Excel sheet. If you look down below here, you'll find the link to our Google Drive. You can go and look at that film of yourself. He knocked out Odie Osborne in very exciting fashion. Now, it was a bit of a, it wasn't a lucky punch. It was Odie being silly. Odie like jumped in the air, tried some, you know, tried some fancy shit and he got his fancy ass knocked out. So you see in that moment, Nam's KO power, you know, he might be turning 40, he is getting older, but the knockout power is very much still intact. His last three wins have all been via knockout. His Muay Thai roots are evident. When you watch him fight, he's a striker by nature, a kicker. His ground game, that's not really part of what he does, but he does sport 100% takedown defense, and we're going to get back to that number because that number is going to be tested in this fight against a guy like Silva who enjoys seeing the fight to the ground, right? Back to Nam, he strikes with bad intentions, mixes in kicks. One of the most impressive things about him, we mentioned before, durability. 40 fucking fights and only been finished twice. And the last time he was finished was 2013, a decade ago, by Marlon Marias, when Marias was like in his prime. So quality fighter, very durable, does not get finished. Nam fights with a relaxed fighting style we mentioned before. He's known for smiling at opponents. He'll wink, and he's not trying to be sassy, per se. He's just having fun. If you kick him or hit him hard, he's like, you got me, cool. You know, that kind of a fighter. Just a, a man's man. He's at home in the octagon, and you could see that by the way he fights. Very relaxed. And I guess after 40-some-odd MMA fights, however many hundred probably kickboxing bouts, he should be comfortable, and it shows just by his posture. He's an orthodox fighter, doesn't really switch stances. Now at this age, has become more of a boxer. I'd say 80% of his strikes are, are boxing-oriented. It's striking with the hands, doesn't kick as much. Now, the two concerns that we have here for my man, Nam, Vietnam. Well, he's been fighting since Vietnam. <laughs> okay, see, he's going to be 40 soon. This is a 125-pound weight class. Those two things don't match. You don't have 125 pounders at 40 years old who are successful in high-level mixed martial arts. It just doesn't really go down. With that said, who am I to say? Tom Brady, what, retired this past year? He was 40-fucking-five years old playing NFL football. So Tyson Nam, maybe you got another few years in, in you. On that note, let's just be honest here. Let's be practical. Father Tom is clearly around the corner. Uh, the ACL tear a few years ago. That injury, your knee is never the same. Not to mention tearing it at the age of 37 or 38 whenever he did it. Looks can be deceiving. I'll give you an example of looks being deceiving. We mentioned Marlon Marias a few minutes ago. A fighter I've always enjoyed watching. A fighter who had a run in the UFC was on top at one point. He looks like he can fight. He's physically in great shape. He makes weight. Everything's there. He talks the part. He's not slurring. And then just one little touch. And he has no chin, glass chin. He goes down. He's been knocked out like in his last six straight fights. No kidding. Seriously. Look it up. Marlon Marias. But, but if you look at Marlon Marias and you, you know, interview him and you go in the gym, and you work out with him and he's got headgear on, you're like, oh, this guy looks great, man. He, he's still got it. Looks can be deceiving. In the case of Tyson Nam, when he falls off, it's probably going to be a, like off the edge because right now he still looks so much intact. But again, he is still turning 40. And Father Time, as they say, is undefeated. 
Our second concern for Nam before we move on to Bruno Silva is the negative striking ratio. And not just a negative striking ratio, but absorbing 5.66 strikes per minute. That's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, just putting it in, in, in layman's terms, if you're counting over the course of a round, that's almost six punches that you're getting, you know, per minute in a round. And there's five minutes in a round, right? So I know this is high level math for you, but if over the course of five minutes, you're getting six hit six times per minute, that's about 30 good flush punches you're taking per round over the course of a fight that turns into 90. It's not a good number. And then when you match the fact that he's landing 3.68 himself, you know, it's not as if he's matching that output. Okay. So those are our two concerns with Tyson Nam. As for Mr. Silva, Silva enters this fight on a knockout streak of his own, having won three of his last four fights by knockout. And though he's known more for his ground game and the grappling, and he's Brazilian, so you imagine right away, jiu-jitsu guy, submission ability, it's on his resume. His striking has really started to pick up, and it started to pay the bills his last few fights. You know, getting fight of the night type of thing, getting bonuses, and knocking people out. And kind of, dare I say, like highlight fashion. Now keep this in mind. This is 125 pounders, right? He knocked out his last two opponents in the, within the first two rounds at a 125 pound weight class. I'm just saying, this guy packs a lot of heat for, for how much he weighs. Now, Silva's a fighter that's easy to get behind because of the recent knockouts and he's younger. He can beat you several ways. There's a lot of boxes to check. I imagine most people will probably find themselves aligning themselves on the side of Silva when they break down this fight. It's kind of easy to do it. This bitch's last few fights just look so good. His safest path to victory in this fight is going to be to take the fight to the ground. He averages almost three takedowns per fight, 2.89 to be specific, 2.89 per 15 minutes or per three-round fight. And this is a three-round fight. He's demonstrated the ability to end his fight on the feet as well. He can beat you both ways. That's the bottom line. Now, notably, Silva served as Henry Cejudo's training partner during the time when Cejudo was like a champion. During that time, you got baby Silva. He was younger at that point, collecting, absorbing tons and tons of valuable information and clearly has parlayed that. I like I used that betting term and used it in the breakdown. Parlayed this into, uh, into a career. And so good camp in the past, good training, good foundation, good fundamentals, learning how to work hard, you know, rubbing elbows with champions in this promotion. So all those things invaluable, right? The only concerns we have for Silva is that, number one, he's going to fall in love with chasing the knockout. You get a few knockouts, next thing you know, everyone is getting knocked out. That's what you're envisioning. Everything becomes a knockout. If you're a submission guy, a wrestling guy, and you start knocking people out, like a Terrence McKinney who has a wrestling foundation, people think of him as just a crazy striker, you start falling in love with that piece of your arsenal, and next thing you know, that's all you see. Every, you're a hammer and everything's a nail and you're just like wacky, wacky, wacky. Not realizing that not every nail is going to go down so easily and also that you still have to mix things up. It's mixed martial arts. Our fear is that Silva comes in here with the expectation, I'm knocking this dude out the way I've been knocking other guys out. I don't think that's possible. Nam hasn't shown that he doesn't have a good chin. He's actually shown he's got a very good chin. Against Odie Osborne, Odie landed a few punches, and you saw Nam, Nam was like, dude, I've been around since Nam. <laughs> this chin's made of granite. So I hope Silva doesn't do that. If he does that, what's the consequences of that? He finds himself now in round three in a fucking war with a guy who's all about this life, who doesn't mind trading back and forth, 
who wants to put on a show for the fans, doesn't mind leaking. Who wants to see you leak? He's going to leak a little bit too. It's all part of the dynamic of what he wants to do in a fight. So for Silva, that's the risk of playing that game. Now, if Silva knocks out Nam, this analysis here sounds like garbage. I got faith in the old man though. He's He could stand and bang. He's shown it before. And so I worry that Silva takes that avenue and then finds himself up the proverbial Shit's Creek against a guy who's a veteran. Okay, so for Silva, needs to stay focused, needs to stay balanced. Now, how about this? We talked about the negative striking ratio that my man Nam has. Well, same goes for Silva. He also has a negative striking ratio. It's not as if he's lighting up on the feet. So once again, on the feet, I think Silva's he's gambling here. He could take some shots, do a few things, you know, maybe trade a few punches, but has to mix in the takedowns, I think, to fight a smart, balanced game plan. Putting some math out there for you guys. If both guys have negative striking ratios, the one thing the fans are guaranteed is a lot of leather eating. Okay, so there's going to be punches landed. There will be blood. And the fans should enjoy this fight. Even though it's early on in the fight card, it is a live event. Whoever is in the, uh, in the arena at that point should enjoy it. One stat that we talked about before, the 100% takedown defense of Nam. I had a triple jacket. It's real. At the same time, hasn't fought super aggressive uh, grappling wrestler types. And I wouldn't even categorize Silva as a super duper aggressive wrestling type. Just that he's someone who's got that ability. And against maybe weaker opponents, He's been successful. Nam, very athletic, did tear the ACL. Now, he fought Ode Osborne after the ACL tear, but Ode is not a takedown guy. How's the ACL? Has it fully healed? Scar tissue, the whole nine. Those knees are never the same after an ACL tear. Look at Thiago Santos, right? So I imagine Silva, if he's using his head, is going to go after the legs. Try some takedowns. We'll see. Does the number 100% takedown defense from my man Tyson... Vietnam, does that number stay? Does that stay or does it whittle down a little bit? We're leaning so ever slightly towards Silva. And because we're leaning ever so slightly, that's what brings us to the decision. You see, the numbers suggest a finish is going to happen and you should play the KO prop in this fight. It's one of the betting spots we're going to play. But here's the reality. It's like the the Robovics fight we just mentioned before against Luke Radzibov last week. They both have finishing ability. They both almost got finished in that fight. But they also both have like concrete King Kong balls. They're men. They're not going to back down like these two guys. You're talking about two guys that have that extra. The thing that Cyril Gaon doesn't have, they got it. They're not going to back down easily. They're not going to tap out easily. You're going to have to put them to sleep and so on and so on and so on. And because of that, the knockout prop is, is something to consider. But we see the fight still going the full distance. And that's why we're taking Silva by decision. Nam is a respectable veteran. Should never be underestimated. Anyone who chooses him this week, you're probably getting the, the good MMA juju, the good karma. He probably wins and makes us look foolish here. But we are putting it out there. For the purposes of this fight, it's going to be close. We like both sides in several different ways. We're just going with the younger fighter who we believe has the other dynamic, the wrestling dynamic, to mix things up. But will he be successful? We'll see. The betting spots we like most for this fight are the fight going over a round and a half, Silva by decision, and then the fight ending by a knockout. That ending, The fight ending by knockout is a prop that's usually available on most sports books. And that doesn't mean either side, just either side, both sides. Doesn't You're not choosing a side. You get the point. That's your breakdown for this fight, guys. Again, we're going with Bruno Silva, the Brazilian, to pick up the win here by decision over Tyson Nam, the MMA veteran.
Moving up the card, next fight's going to be a bantamweight battle at 135 pounds between two American fighters, Victor Henry and Tony Gravely. Before we get into the whole breakdown, I'll give you our pick. We like Victor Henry to win the fight by round three knockout. If you're wondering, that prop is priced at plus 1,200. We'll definitely take a stab at that. We'll give you our full breakdown and try to explain to you how we came up with that as the outcome. I know a lot of people are thinking it's going to go the full decision. Both guys are very durable. Henry's never been finished. Gravity's been finished. But uh, when was that? It was a while ago. We'll go over it. But the point is both guys are very durable. So we're looking to expect, in most cases, the fight probably goes to the distance, right? But I think that Henry, who's a fighter who's able to weaponize his cardio, can really pour on the pace at some point and maybe find Gravely not returning enough punches and the referee steps in to have to call it a TKO because of not returning fire, not because Gravely's knocked out per se. Again, if you know Victor Henry, and if you don't know, we'll talk about him. The guy is a, he's a monster. He, he, he just does not stop high motor, high output. That's his fighting style. As for the basics on these two guys, Tony Gravely, a lot of experience, 23 and eight overall, three and two in his last five fights out of Coconut Creek, Florida, where he's training out of American top team. Do love that high level of fighting partners and coaches. He's five, five compared to the five, seven of Victor giving up two inches in height, but does have the one inch in reach advantage. I don't believe that height or reach is much of a factor. These guys are in the same range. Gravely is 31 years old compared to 35, about to be 36 for Henry. So Henry it is now or never. We'll talk about that. He's at a point in his career where he needs to step in the gas pedal, right? For Gravely, he is a former college wrestler. We'll talk about that. That's his base. For Victor Henry, he is a striker. His base is over karate style, and we'll get more into that when we get into their details. For Victor Henry, goes by La Mangosta. He's 22-6 and six overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Based out of Cali, 35 years old in 10 months, about to be 36. Again, 5'7", 68-inch reach out of UWF USA. As for the public votes and topology, Henry is getting most of the votes at 60%, 40% coming in for Gravely. Before I go a step further, full disclosure, I actually was leaning towards Gravely, before the fight breakdown, I was just like, oh, you know, he wrestles so much and he can utilize the wrestling. And, you know, Victor, I'm thinking a little overrated, that fight with Ronnie Barcelos, you know, whatever. Well, that was my initial thought. Uh, after some research and after doing a dive and after going back and watching and actually looking at the recent fights, I am on the side of Victor Henry pretty strongly. And obviously we're on him so much because we think he's now going to finish the fight at some point in round number three. All that said, let's jump into it here. So Victor Henry by round three knockout is plus 1,200. That's our prediction. Gravely's a balanced fighter. He does have roots in wrestling, multiple-time state champion in Virginia, then went on to wrestle in college at Appalachian State University, which is NCAA Division One. though I don't like emphasizing one, two, or three. There's guys who go junior college, which is not even Division One, two, or three. That's like pre-college, whatever. There's guys who go Division three who become Olympians. And even other sports, there's people who've played Division Three football who are playing in the NFL right now, and uh, so on and so on. So anyway, he did wrestle at a high level, then trained when he was doing his early mixed martial arts career, trained at Virginia Tech with their wrestling program. So bottom line is, he's a wrestler. He has wrestling ability, right? He's been able to take down pretty much everyone he's fought. He averages 5.83 takedowns per fight. That's a very high number, though it's in part because he can't keep people down. So they get back up, he's got to take them back down type of thing. Um, Gravely began his MMA career as a wrestler only. You saw that in his early fights. He has now evolved, has pretty smooth striking. Doesn't look like a guy who didn't have boxing early on. Put it that way. He got a nice one-two punch, works behind his jab. 
Doesn't throw a lot of combinations. Volume is okay. He does throw an effective, like I said, one-two combination. His path to victory is typically involving some type of ground and pound, grappling, um, not really jiu-jitsu so much, but but uh, wrestling, takedowns, and position control, right? That's his path to victory. Standing up gets in a little bit of trouble. So against an okay fighter, lower-level fighter, he can hang. Above average strikers, people like Javad Basharat, or Javid, excuse me, who he fought recently and lost to, or even guys like Victor Henry, I think he's in a, in the danger zone. That's not where he should be fighting. The biggest red flag, though, the elephant in the room for Tony Gravely is the cardio. And though I had it in my head as an issue and it was a bit of a red flag, going back and watching his prior fights, it's bad. He's got a cardio problem. Like, I don't know if he's possibly asthmatic. I'm not joking. I don't know what it is. After the midway point of round one of his last fight with Javid, he hit a freaking wall, man. He just, he was not the same fighter. Up until that point, it was an okay fight. Uh, there was a cut on Javid that was by a headbutt. It wasn't a, a punch by, by Gravely, but Gravely had taken him down. You know, things were looking okay. And then, boom. Round two and three, it's just Tony Gravely just holding on, taking an ass kicking, quite frankly, showing a lot of heart and being able to take a butt kicking and go to the full distance. Now, consider this little factoid here. Since 2019, Tony Gravely or Gravely is four and three overall. That's seven fight spectrum. That's a good sample size. He's barely above 500. If he were to lose here to Henry, which we think he will, he falls to four and four in his last eight fights over approximately a four-year window, eight fights. It's a good sample size. He has turned into a very average fighter at this point in his career, and it's mostly due to the cardio. Is the four and four record he's coming up upon, is that a sign of inconsistency or a sign that he's fighting good competition? He is in the UFC, so fighting good competition is a factor, but it also screams of, again, inconsistent 500-level fighter. As for Mr. Henry, fights at a very high pace. When we were watching film on him, a name came to mind. You know, we just started drawing comparisons to Hafiyah Fiziev. And there is a comparison. They both have very high activity. They're not trying to kill you with every shot, but they're putting something behind it. Mexican leg kicks, body kicks, even the stance is a little bit similar. When Henry's stance is, is comfortable, it's, it's to the side, it's a little karate-esque, not as wide as someone like Steven Thompson, but similar to Rafael Fiziev. High output, they weaponize cardio, very good footwork, moves in and out of range, balance attack, and can take a punch like Fiziev. Now, I don't think that Henry is as good as Hafiyah Fiziev. I'm just saying there's some similarities there. Now, opponents tend to fall into the trap when they're fighting Victor of trying to keep up with the pace of, like, you hit me, I hit you back. And in the case of Henry, he does get hit quite a bit. But when people try to fight that game with him, he's good at that game. And eventually people start to wear down. And he just picks up the pace more and more. In the case of Gravely, we know he'll try to wrestle. That's his initial instinct, wrestle, wrestle. And early on, we might even see him getting a takedown, have some success with that, right? Going back to the first fight, by the way, for Henry, he made his UFC debut last year as a plus 3-8 underdog against Ronnie Barcelos. Pieced up Barcelos. That <laughs> Barcelos leaking. Won the fight by decision. And that right there puts you on notice. This guy can strike. If you don't take him down and hug him and submit him, if you stand the feet with him, it's tough. He averages almost eight strikes per minute, Victor Henry. We mentioned before he gets hit a lot, though. He does get hit a little bit. He's getting hit about 6.47 strikes per minute. So he's the kind of guy where he's given one or two, taking one. 
has faith in his chin, never been finished before. So he did like that. 28 total fights, never been finished, right? He took everything Barcelos had to offer him, by the way, too. So Barcelos did hit him a few times, flush, and you saw Henry dealt with that. In this fight, Henry needs to defend the takedowns, right? That's going to be the number one thing. If he gets taken out early, get back up. He's shown that ability in the past. If there's two weak areas for Henry, it's getting hit too much, right? He needs to shore up the stand-up defense. That's a little bit reckless to get hit that much. And then wrestling. What I mean by that is he does stand up, but he has no offensive wrestling, and he does get taken down. You know, so those are the two weak points there on Victor Henry. You know the phrase, styles makes fights, right? Well, in this case, this is a stylistic nightmare for Tony Gravely. He needs a guy who is weak at defending takedowns and will stay down, and a guy who's going to calm down and fight at normal pace. He's got a guy who's got a super high motor, is not going to stop, and at some point, there's going to be a shift. So early on, we could see some success for Gravely. Maybe he gets a takedown. Eventually, Henry's going to start chipping away. At first, it won't look like a big deal because Gravity will still have his cardio. But Henry fights at a banana's pace. Just it's it's. You'll see it. <laughs> you'll see it on Saturday. Endurance issues will eventually rear their ugly head. Gravity will start to slow down. As soon as Henry notices that Gravity is starting to slow down, Gravity's going to pick up the pace even more. And if Gravity's too exhausted to actually return fire and do something defend himself we can see the ref stepping in just because he's got head down not returning fire he's balled up so henry with the late round knockout that's her prediction the spots we like from a betting perspective the most are the over one and a half rounds so we do think that the fight at least gets to that point so gravely's been pretty durable again so has henry it's when gravely slows down so later in the fight is when we're seeing the window of opportunity so over one and a half rounds is minus 320 that'll be a parlay piece for us henry on the money line at minus 145 so you're still getting him at a really good value we'll probably play him straight up as well as an individual bet and then the last prop is henry by round three tko at plus 1200 so that's your breakdown for tony gravely versus victor henry we are on henry to win the fight in round three by knockout let's move on moving up the card which should be the first women's bout in the card a flyweight battle 125 pounders J.J. Aldrich, the American fighter, versus Ariana Lipsky, the Brazilian fighter. Ariana Lipsky goes by the Queen of Violence, and a very fitting nickname at that, which we will talk about in a few moments. Lipsky's 14-8 overall, versus J.J. Aldrich, who's 11-5 overall. Before we get into this breakdown, we'll tell you right off the bat, we do like Lipsky to win the fight by decision. Of course, J.J.'s a big favorite here. This is not a dog or pass type of pick. We do like Ariana to win the fight. We think she's got a path to victory. And we'll try to convince you throughout this breakdown. If you're parlaying J.J. Aldridge this week, please pay attention to our warning here. We just got off that last card. We just saw what Shevchenko did at minus 600 range. Now, this is a different situation. We understand. And Lipsky, uh, she's no Alexa Grasso, put it that way. But minus 375 is not warranted. You're going to probably hear that across the board from a lot of different good news outlets and sources for breaking down fights, cappers, whatever you want to call it. They'll tell you minus 375 is not appropriate. And for that reason alone, we got to take a good look at Lipsky. And we did. And we came up with some stuff that I think will excite you to at least consider this dog play. Let's get back to the particulars here. For Aldrich, 11 and 5 overall, 3 and 2 in her last five fights. Again, the big favorite here out of Denver, Colorado, where she trains out of Elevation Fight Team. 30 years old, 5 to 5 in height with a 67 and a half inch reach. So, reach wise and height wise, they're about the same. For Lipsky, Again, goes by the Queen of Violence. She's 14-8 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights. A bit of a rough run 
Again, out of Brazil, 29 years old, so almost the same age as Aldrich. Again, age-wise, reach, height, those factors are about the same. For Lipsky, it says on Tapology, she's out of King's MMA, and she may have done some training in the past out of King's, but taking a closer look, like her IG and stuff like that, she trains out of a gym called Rosh Thai, and then also has done some training out of ATT. Not sure if that's where she's training right now, but uh, if she is, hopefully at least part of her camp, that would be beneficial to her winning this fight, right? Okay, as for the breakdown and as for the details, we like Lipsky to win the fight by decision. That's our prediction. Now, as for Aldrich, she has a wealth of fighter experience. For a 30-year-old fighter, she has been pretty much at the top level, fighting at the top level since about the age of 23. At 23 years old, she was an ultimate fighter. That was back 2016. From there, like she bounced around Invicta, fought a little bit Invicta before that, and then after that, and then made her way to the UFC. This is actually gonna mark her 13th fight in the UFC. So again, at a young age, it was like thrown to the fire, have to forgive her for some of her early losses, right? Cause she was so young. Now she comes into this fight off of a loss to Aaron Blanchfield that's aging well because Blanchfield submitted her. And of course, Blanchfield just submitted, you know, uh, Jessica Andrade and Blanchfield looks like a potential title contender. So that loss to her in second round, not such a bad loss. And if you go back and watch the film, it was just kind of a, it was a mistake. Look, good fighters make you pay for mistakes. The same way that Shevchenko got caught by a spinning maneuver that she highly regrets, of course. Her opponent, Les Grasso, was ready for the mistake to happen, meaning that she was ready to pounce on something that anyone does as a mistake. Good fighters do that. In the case of Aldrich, that's what happened against Blanchfield. They were on the ground. It was a scrambling thing, and Blanchfield catches Aldrich's neck while Aldrich is trying to get up and then turns into a guillotine, a very nasty guillotine. Nonetheless, loses that fight, is what it is. Now she's coming into this fight off of that fight, right? Again, not the end of the world, right? For Aldrich, she's a pretty good wrestler, yet the numbers say a different story. She's only averaging 0.9, that's less than one, right? 0.9 takedowns per fight per three rounds. It doesn't make sense when you look at her fighting style and you see that she actually took down Blanchfield. There's some encouraging evidence there that she can do some more work with the wrestling but she doesn't really commit to it. And obviously the numbers show that. For Aldrich in this fight, we think her path to victory does need to include a takedown. At least one part of a round, earning that round because of control time on top. Some ground and pound, that's not really part of her game, but at least position control and putting Lipsky on her back. Lipsky has 55% takedown defense, so there should be plenty of opportunities there for Aldrich to test that and bring her to the ground. Now, the biggest concern we have for Aldrich, the same concern everyone does. She gets into this mode where she turns into that, I can't describe it any other way, a deer in the headlights. She's staring, looking at her opponent, not doing anything. The volume tails off and you just want to shake her. There's been some prior fights, if I could just explain to this, in interviews where she said that she didn't push the tempo in a specific fight or two because she thought she already did enough to win. Looking back at those fights that she was referring to, it's like it it doesn't hold weight because those fights were close and even the announcers and those fights and people watching them were like, you know, why aren't you letting your hands go? Why aren't you doing more? This has been a repetitive theme though. And I think, and I don't want to sound disrespectful. So for all the Aaron Blanchfield, I'm sorry, Aaron Blanchfield, the JJ Aldridge people out there who might be hearing this. And if it's actually heard by JJ herself, I mean this with all due respect, it comes off at times. It gives off the vibe of, I don't want to mix it up too much. I don't want to fight too much and get myself 
damaged or I'm protecting myself from an injury maybe, it comes off as very passive, a passive fighting style. We remember the fight with Rose Namajunas not too long ago, right? With her and I forgot the fighter. Was it Carla Esparza who she was fighting? It ends up being one of the worst fights in history. It was five rounds of no engagement and then post fight you heard Rose defending herself by saying, listen, can I have a fight where I'm not bleeding everywhere? Okay, let me get to the point here. I think that's some of what's going on with Aldrich. It's almost like a defense mechanism. So for her, if she wins two rounds of a fight and she's hearing that in her corner and she's being reinforced, yes, round three, she won't do much of anything. For Aaron Lipsky, she needs to look at those moments when they happen and pour on the volume. And we think that could be a place where Aaron Lipsky can at least steal around, possibly, you know what I'm saying? So again, this is past fights. We've seen this, this habit from... JJ Aldridge, does she, you know, break that habit? Has she made some changes? I don't know. Her last fight against Blanchfield, it was more action, so you didn't see her being very passive. But again, could it rear its ugly head again? We don't know. For Lipsky, she goes by the Queen of Violence. So listen to us on this one, right? This might be the most appropriate nickname in the entire business. For real. I'm not kidding. Listen to this. She got destroyed in her last fight against Cachoeira. <laughs> like destroyed, folded. She decides with a minute to go, not even like 45, 50 seconds to go in round one, that since she got hit with a punch or two and, and then maybe she wants to stand her ground, I'm going to just stand and trade with Cachoeira. And Cachoeira is like, oh, we're going to do this. This is what I love to do. And of course, Lipsky gets folded up, <laughs> knocked down. And then there's a little bit of more ground and pound just to dust her off a little bit. Terrible fighter IQ move. Yes, a lot of balls on her part. Showed a lot of courage. The crowd loved it. It was a minute-long fight. <laughs> but not a good idea. Not a smart move. Something you can explain away as we get to this breakdown. But Queen of Violence, that checks the mark right there, right? A lot of violence. She's the Queen of Violence. Let's talk about some prior fights. Two of her last four fights involved her getting finished by Montana De La Rosa and Antonina Shevchenko, not Valentina, the sister Shevchenko, both of these ladies took her to the ground, grinded her up. De La Rosa had her bleeding all over the place and looking like chewed up meat. So yeah, the queen of violence is real. Uh, she is involved in fights where there's a lot of violence and she's the queen of it. She's not delivering it, but there's violence. <laughs> Hence the nickname. It makes some sense on a serious note though. Those losses, they, it wasn't all that bad. There was some good things in there. We'll talk about it as we go through these losses, but there were some things there that she could hold on to. Now, another bad loss for Lipsky. Could she get the boot? Then again, she is pretty good looking. Brazilian, nice long black hair. I mean, she may be one of the most naturally pretty girls in the entire roster, so maybe that buys her some time. Okay, serious note here. She hasn't been that bad, and if you look at her on film, I think you see some things where you're like, okay, she's not that bad there. I mean, she's looked bad when she was on the ground getting chewed up. Her loss against Cachoeira, you know, <laughs> she decided to stand and bang. But if you can put some of those things in a box, I think you find that her striking is not awful. There's some volume there. There's some combinations. Her takedown defense is not great, but she's shown to be able to reverse position and defend some takedowns, 55%, about half the time. She's squirrely on the ground. Like she'll get into some situations where she'll try to find submissions. She is Brazilian. So you figure she just has that in her arsenal. I fear she'll stand her back too long. 
I also fear good top control. She can't get up. And that's where Aldrich should be able to do some work, like put her on her back, right? And stay on top of her. I'm also thinking though, could we see possibly JJ come to this fight has a little bit of, she's a little gun shy about getting a takedown because she got the guillotine choke last fight from Blanchfield and she gets timid. I mean, Lipsky has to know the takedowns are coming. She's going to have to, be able to defend them. And if she gets taken down, she needs to get up immediately, right? Because we've seen what happens to Lipsky when she's on her back. But I want to emphasize again, looking back at Lipsky on film, we found her to be the superior striker. She has more snapper punches. She's doing more, more volume. In a fight like this, a female fight where it's bound to go to decision, quite possibly could be close. Those female hiyas and like just some volume, you're stealing a round or two. We also want to point out this for Lipsky. It's been on film commentators mentioning she did some training at ATT, right? If she is training ATT part-time, whatever the time it is, with good coaching, proper camp, you know, proper just preparation, we think there's more left here. Like she can be a better fighter. She's not all that bad. It's just been these instances where she fought fighters who were either better in a certain area. She showed poor fighter IQ, allowed herself to get exposed. She does cut easily. That is a that is a bad thing for her. She needs to, again, has to stay off the mat, has to stay off her back, right? So again, we measured him up. We found Aldridge to be the slightly better wrestler, like ever so slightly. I mean, she's averaging 0.9 takedowns per fight. So even if she's the slightly better wrestler, she's not doing much with it. So it's a, it's a small measure of a possible advantage on the side of Aldridge. Striking, we think Lipsky's the, the, the faster, more volume striker. And we think that when push comes to shove, Lipsky will at least throw and let her hands go. We've seen Aldridge kind of freeze up. Experience-wise, that edge also goes to Aldridge. We talked about the Ultimate Fighter, Invicta, 13th UFC fight, so on and so on. Again, a female fight probably goes a distant. The Queen of Violence, she's not going to show up in this fight. The Queen of Violence is going to put it away, calm down, win a nice fluffy decision, some jabs from a distance, use the volume. And I fear that Aldridge is a big favorite here that a lot of, let a lot of people down. I think so at minus 375, it's going to become a popular parlay piece just because of the range. Let's say this, even the casual fan who doesn't know much about any of the people on the card are going to say, oh, minus 375, that sounds like a, <clears throat> it's a, it's just slam dunk. Put her in there. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So betting spots for this fight, the ones we like the most, and there's a handful here, so let's listen up now. Aldrich by decision is plus 100. That's a lot better than minus 375. We talked about Aaron Olivsky, why she's been finished. You know, Montana De La Rosa, she's serviceable on the ground. She got on top, ended up getting like full mount. Shevchenko, Shevchenko B. You know, uh, not the Shevchenko A, but still trains with Shevchenko A and has some ground skills. And then, of course, the the bad decision there by Lipsky to trade with Cachoeira. So we don't see Aldridge fitting fit, fit the mold of any of those fighters, right? Like Aldridge, we said before, like, we wonder if, like, does she really want to get into it? Like, is she one of those fighters who fights a passive fighting style because they don't want to, they don't want to get bloody. They don't want to get too messed up. I'm not blaming her. I mean, I'm not out there getting myself punched in the face. Somewhere in the back of the head there, like the internal clock is sort of protecting her. Like, let's get out of here unscathed. And if she takes that approach, 
how is she going to finish over Lipsky? Like, Lipsky can't finish herself. And I don't think Lipsky's going to finish Aldridge either. So that decision prop there at plus 100 for Aldridge, if she wins the fight, I think that's the way she does it. For Lipsky, take her just outright to win. Of course, you got dog money. But man, by decision at plus 480, we will have to put that spot. Have to put some money there at plus 480. Fight starts round three. That line is not priced yet. Fight goes the distance is minus 175. I kind of like that spot. I also like the over two and a half rounds at minus 210. We're going to sprinkle the split props on both sides when they come out. Those should be nice and rich. And in a fight like this where, let me play a scenario for you. Aldrich and her round one is like, you can't figure it out. You don't know who won. They both landed a few things. Nobody got rocked. Neither girl has a lot of punching power anyway. You're left after round one like, I don't know. Round two comes out. Aldridge gets the takedown that she needs. She gets the position control, maybe lands a few strikes on the ground, gets that round. So we go to round three. It's like, okay, she's got a round, round one. We don't know. Round three, Aldridge turns into the deer. <laughs> Hands freeze up. In her mind, she's like, I won two rounds because I won the last round. And the first round was close. And in her head, she's like, I won two rounds. I won the fight already. It's over. She stands like this. Lipsky comes out. Lipsky's peppering her because Lipsky, we know one thing about Lipsky. For as pretty as she is, she's also not playing with a full deck. She doesn't care. She'll just start training with you. She did it against Cash Aware. She's going to say, fuck it. I might be down this fight. I'm coming at you. So here comes an active Ariana Lipsky who's shown good card in the past. Gets going like a butterfly. Fight ends on that note. It looks like Lipsky wins round three. Aldrich wins round two. And then round one is like up in the air and we get the almighty split. So look for the split props to come out. If you want to get our specific betting action for this entire card, that's free. It's available all day, every day. Well, it's not out just yet, but to get that full tip sheet, subscribe to our newsletter. That link's down below. It's the first link in our description here on this YouTube video. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you get the newsletter write up, which is the full card breakdown in a written format, stats, charts, numbers, if you like Excel sheets, all that stuff there. Um, we have a folder on our Google Drive account, which is free, open to you guys. In that folder, which says UFC Vegas 71, you'll find a breakdown for each individual fight, the notes, the pros and the cons on each fighter. You'll find an Excel sheet, which is like we call our data sheet. That sheet has a plethora of basic information like fighter records or last five, their gym, the money lines, those type of things. But more importantly, it includes a film library. All the way to the right side, you have a film library, tons of links, all they're organized for you for their prior fights. And then some comparison notes, who we think's better at striking or grappling, who has more experience, cardio, so on and so on. That's all in our Excel sheet, our data sheet. And that's for every single fight card we break down. That's on the Google Drive again. That Now that link's also down below as well. It's like the second or third link in our description. You'll see it down there. It says Google Drive link. You go there, you'll see all our breakdowns for PFL events, Bellator. If you're seeing it here on YouTube, if you're hearing it here, that's part of the breakdown process. Those notes are there available for you guys, along with those data sheets, full tip sheet, so on and so on. And this ties into the newsletter because the newsletter provides you with a newsletter breakdown, a written format of each breakdown we go through. And so the newsletter is also accompanied in that each newsletter comes with the links to the video breakdown like this, 
the drive links and the data sheet links. A reminder, it's all available via podcast. So for those that are on the move and you want to hear my luscious voice talk about UFC stuff, you could listen to us on the go. That's all again in the newsletter. And that newsletter comes out once a week for UFC events. If there's a second event that week, like an Invicta event or PFL, a second newsletter will drop for that. You can download the app for Substack, which is what we use for our newsletters. And that Substack newsletter app is free, simple, easy to use. So if you don't want to go opening your email, the episode or newsletter, whichever version is coming out, will come right to your app. You can open it, read it on the go, close it, open it back later. If you're not big into reading, you just want to see our tip sheet so you can make some extra money, then just scroll down to the very bottom and the tip sheet is in there with all of our write-ups. Okay, I gave you a full plug there on why you should subscribe to our Substack newsletter. And if you don't do so, we're going to come hunt you down and make you subscribe to it. Well, actually, we're not going to do that because that's not possible, right? <laughs> that's what they call a hollow threat. Look, I think Aldrich, to put this, put a button on this, has plenty of opportunities to maybe win the fight by using wrestling. It should be there. Aaron Lipsky has 55% take on defense. She should be able to do it. But a lot of shoulds and woulds and maybes with someone like Aldrich, who I again question how much she wants to fight. If there's one little way weighing balance here, we know Lipsky will, will stand and fight with you. We know that. She did it to her own detriment. Well, then again, no, she did it because her nickname is the Queen of Violence, right? That's your breakdown, guys. We'd like Aaron Lipsky to win the fight by decision. Next up, we have a Bantamweight bout, 135 pounds. Mario Bautista versus Guido Canetti. This is the largest disparity on the money line. Mr. Bautista is sitting around minus 900 to minus 1,000 currently. Huge favorite. We get it. He's maybe the better fighter and has some skill advantages over the old man, Guido Canetti, who's 43. But, man, minus 1,000 is, uh, is risque. We'll talk about some ways to adjust some bets that maybe can at least get you some equal to plus money return here on how to bet in this fight, but that minus 1,000, we're not touching it, and we're definitely not going to parlay it. Let's get into the particulars here. Well, let me tell you, first of all, we like Bautista to win the fight by a second round submission. That is our prediction. We see him attacking early on, but not getting through to Guido until round number two, maybe even into round number three, because Guido is, he's a savvy veteran, has had some durability issues, though, and we think that at some point Mario gets to him in round two. By submission. Okay, as for their particulars in these two fighters, Bautista is 11 and 2 overall, 4 1 in his last five fights out of Glendale, Arizona, 29 years old. 5 9 in height will have a 3 inch height advantage over Guido. Guido Canetti is usually the smaller fighter, that's just his stature. He's, he's not thick or fat, but just muscly, so he tends to be a little bit shorter for this division. He's used to being the smaller guy, put it that way. Bautista has a 69 inch reach, and for Canetti, 68 inch reach. So reach is about the same. For Jim, Mario Bautista trains out of MA Lab, and Guido Canetti's out of Our Town MMA, which I imagine is down in Argentina, which is where he's from. Canetti goes by the Ninja, 10 and 6 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights, so a bit of a rough stretch recently. And again, a huge underdog sitting currently around minus 600, minus, I'm sorry, minus plus 600 to plus 625. 43 years old in two months, so just turned 43 in his prime, right? He's 5'6 again, so giving up 3 inches in height. I'll tell you this. We came into this breakdown trying to find a educated way to back Kennedy. And at first glance, there are some things that you really can like about Kennedy. This is more of a matchup problem, being that you know he's you know 14, 15 years older type of thing. 
and he's fighting a guy who seems to be making some really big steps and improving. And Kennedy's been had some durability issues. And with Batista, he's been a finishing machine recently. So matchup-wise, it's really hard to find a way to get behind Kennedy. We'll discuss some methods that maybe can get him into a winning position, or at least maybe a path or two for him to find some success here. But it's going to be very unlikely. So Batista, he is entering this fight on a three-fight winning streak. Had back-to-back submission wins in his last two fights. High finish rate overall, 73% to be exact. He's an exciting prospect. The UFC appears to be giving him a fight where they know he's probably going to win and want to see him do well, right? Help not pad his record, but give him another W. Bautista is the taller fighter in this fight. He's usually the average fight, I mean, average height for this division. So this time he'll be the taller fighter. Be nice for him. The only knock on him is that he got dismantled by Trevin Jones. Yes, Trevin Jones, 13 and 10 Trevin Jones, who's currently on a four fight losing streak. That Trevin Jones, the Trevin Jones, whose last win was against Mario Bautista. And that was him knocking out Bautista in round one. Bautista was a minus 230 favorite going into that fight. Looking back on that film, he took a few punches standing. I don't think he realized that he was starting to get a little buzzed. And then he took a real hard upper hand, uppercut. It was a weird punch, awkward angle, kind of surprised him. It wasn't a one-punch knockout, but could be perceived as a bit of a one-punch knockout. I mean, he went to the ground, and then Trevin Jones landed a few more punches. What I mean by one-punch knockout is that he got basically stunned by the one punch. any case, bit of a learning experience. Doesn't age well because Trevin Jones as we already mentioned before, is struggling and barely hanging on to his UFC career. Now, that loss isn't so bad as, like, for example, I'm sorry, the loss that is not so bad on his record is the Sanhagen loss. Now, he lost to Sanhagen in his UFC debut, and in that fight, he was a plus 430 underdog. Given the circumstances and the quality of the opponent with Sanhagen, that loss not so bad. Again, the one with Trevin Jones, not so much. Bautista has made big improvements. We've noticed it. He looks stronger. He looks more ripped. His striking is cleaner and submission skills are getting better and better. All that said, should he really be a minus 1000 favorite in this spot? I don't know. I just look what happened last weekend. Shevchenko. Yeah. Minus 600 favorite. Uh, you know, even, even Shavkat Rachmanov, right? He won the fight, got a finish in round three. It was exciting. He was a minus 500 favorite. That was a good fight. He got hurt. So sometimes these lines are just silly. Anyway, as for Guido Canetti, big underdog here in this spot. He's getting up there in years, 43 years young, but he's more than capable of making this at least a fight, especially early on. He's been getting tired recently. That could be a sign of age. Late in round two, round three, he starts to slow down. But early on, very active, doesn't seem to have slowed down speed-wise, like still is very agile. He enters this bout on a two-fight winning streak. His last defeat was by split decision. That was Tamana Martinez. At least one judge thought he won. So in another universe, he could be on a three-fight winning streak, right? He won his last fight via a round one submission as a plus 240 underdog. And that was against, was that Ramos? I have to look it up. But that was a fight where in is a similar situation, right? He came in as an underdog. His opponent makes a mistake. Randy Costa, excuse me, makes a mistake. And then Kennedy goes ahead and jumps in and gets himself a submission. On the heels of what happened last weekend with Shevchenko, with her making that colossal mistake of the spinning move and then getting submitted by making that mistake, something we've seen many times before in mixed martial arts, that is a, it's something that can happen, right? So in the case of Bautista, he does something, slips, falls, makes a small mistake. Next thing you know, you've got Kennedy 
backpacking him and looking for a submission. And whatever, we, whatever, however you fight, fight Kennedy, you could choose different ways to fight him. You don't want him on your back. That's not one way you want to be fighting him because it's one of the the few things that he really still can do. And these old guys, these 43-year-old guys, I mean, if you've ever been to a gym and you rolled on the mat with these guys who are older, who are jiu-jitsu guys, that jiu-jitsu stuff, it doesn't go. That's why Glover Teixeira picked up a title last year because it, it doesn't go. They still keep those moves forever. Now, speed and like, you know, the chin and, uh, you know, knockout power, those type of things may go over time, but the jiu-jitsu stays. And for Kennedy, he does have that one weapon. So if you want to argue for a path to victory for how he can win this fight, by submission would be a potential path for him. You know, just kind of putting it out there. Anyway, um, as for Kennedy, durability. We mentioned before, that's been a little bit of a concern for him. He has been finished four times in his career, including if you add one of the Ultimate Fighter fights. Both fighters are high-level jiu-jitsu practitioners. If either of them makes a mistake, they're going to take advantage of it. So that goes for either Mario or Guido. A neck, an arm, a leg, an ankle, anything. These guys are submission attackers. Put it that way. Anyway... On paper, this should be a cakewalk for Bautista. We like what we saw from him on film. He has gotten better. He's made some improvements. And it's very well possible he just runs through Kennedy in round one with a quick submission of some kind. But if Bautista makes a mistake, even the slightest mistake, kind of what Shevchenko did against Grasso, Kennedy will jump on the opportunity. And then from there, we could have an upset. Kennedy did get an upset in his last fight too, right? Kennedy by submission is a prop that at least deserves a little bit of attention. It's difficult to envision Kennedy getting a knockout here over Batista, and I do have a little question about Batista's chin, especially after the way he got knocked down and knocked out by um, Trevin. But the thing is, I don't think that Kennedy has the power at this point in his career. That's just not part of his arsenal that I think that he ends up finishing Batista by a knockout. Now, by some kind of weird split decision and it's greasy, who knows? I mean... He did go to a split decision against Mano Martinez, but I don't think that he's got the volume, Kennedy that is, to go the three rounds and then win two of those three rounds in a scorecard. So it's just in my head. That's I'm just not seeing the volume. Whereas I think that the younger fighter here will have the volume, will have the pace and the pressure in rounds two and three if it does go to decision. The betting spots I like the most of this fight are the fight going under two and a half rounds at minus 290, Bautista by second round submission at plus 600, Bautista by decision at plus 390, and then Kennedy by submission. Your long shot play here at plus 2,000. It's it's price right. We'll take a stab at it. I mean, at plus 2,000, yeah, you're getting some nice odds. $10 to win 200 bucks. You know, you can't go wrong there. In any case, we wanted to make some kind of an argument for the old man here, the veteran, Kennedy, but it's just hard to find a path here. If you're talking about decision, how would that look? Would that be a point being taken away somehow from Bautista? I mean, can you imagine Kennedy maybe getting a knockdown in one round? That could be a path to getting one or two rounds. Uh, just hard to imagine if everything's even keel over the course of three rounds that Kennedy has more volume. He is a good kicker, throws nice lower leg kicks, throws strong kicks in general, and can get ahead in rounds because of his volume with the lower leg kicks. Again, that's more relegated to the first half of the fight. I don't see that happening to the second half. And while he's doing the lower leg kicks, Bautista's not going to just do nothing. He'll look for a takedown. He'll have counters and so on and so forth. So age is a factor. 43 years old. Father time's around the corner. We would love to see Kennedy pull off an upset. Nothing against the young guy, Bautista. It would just be kind of cool. 
but we can't uh, we can't go with the underdog here. We've got to go with the favorite, Bautista, by second-round submission. That's our pick. Moving up the card. Next fight's going to be a middleweight bout. 185-pounders, Sajikrius Dumas versus Josh Frem. Now, Dumas goes by the Reaper. He is brand new to the scene. This will be his first UFC fight. He won a contender series last year. Exciting fashion. We'll talk about that. We'll go through his profile. Up against Josh Frem, who goes by the Big Yins. For Fremd, been a rough start for his UFC career thus far. Needs a win here. We're going to go with Dumas to win the fight by round one submission. We're not being very creative here. Dumas won his last fight by round one submission. But based upon his profile, his long arms, how he's built, what he's good at, and also what Josh Fremd is not good at, which is like getting choked out, we think that we could find a first round finish here for Dumas. Now, as for the details, Dumas is 7-0. Undefeated, you like that. Obviously, five of his last five fights out of Pensacola, Florida. 27 years old, 6'2 in height with a 79-inch reach out of Port City Combat Sports. So one thing that pops out for you is almost an 80-inch reach. That's long, especially for a middleweight. Now, you compare that to Josh Fremd, who tends to be the taller fighter in most matchups. He is very tall, 6'4", but his reach is 76.5. So actually, the reach advantage will be on the side of Dumas, whereas the height will be on the side of Josh Fremd. For Fremd, 9-4 overall, 23's last five fights out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 29 years old versus 27, so guys are both in the same wheelhouse in terms of age. And for Fremd, he's out of All-American MMA Academy. I will say this. I've had a chance to interview Dumas three times now, talked to him quite a bit. He travels to Vegas at least three, four times a month to train at the PI and get access to some better you know, athletes or whatever else. Port City Combat is where he's based out of in Pensacola, Florida. But again, does a good job of traveling and getting access to better training partners. As for our breakdown of this fight, again, we like Sadiqus Dumas to win the fight by round one submission. That's currently lined at plus 700. Hope we're right on this one. Dumas is making his UFC debut, as we mentioned before. A very exciting win on Contender Series. He secured a standing guillotine choke in 47 seconds in the first round over a guy that he was the actual underdog to. And the guy he was fighting was a very good prospect, someone that we actually expect at some point to make his way into the UFC. And you could even argue... That opponent may have been equal to, if not better, than what he's going to be facing in this fight. Now, prior to going professional, Dumas was 9-1 as an amateur. Important to keep that in mind. He didn't just show up in the pro scene going 7-0, easy fights. He went 9-1 as an amateur, had a good amount of fights. So that 7-1 record can be a little deceiving. There's nothing about Dumas that we don't like. Like the guy's got good striking. He's got good submission skills. We just don't know how he's going to be in round three. Cardio hasn't really been tested. And maybe in just in general, he hasn't been tested. Now, I want to put out there little details about this man's background. Having had a chance to interview him several times, you may have heard his story about growing up in Chicago. He grew up in Chicago and was once in the backseat of a car during a drive-by, got shot like seven or eight times. Obviously, he survived that incident. He was getting into trouble, hanging on the wrong people. His family did an intervention. They told him they were going on a trip to Florida, like a vacation. Instead of a vacation, they dropped his ass off in Florida with some relatives. At first, he said he was he hated it. He was so angry at his family for doing this to him, dropping him off in the south in this little small town. He now looks back and says that may have saved his life. So he's growing up. He's having a moment. You know, he's becoming awoke to the idea that listen, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm I have skills. I'm undefeated. I'm in the UFC. Having talked to him at length, I'll tell you this. He's a growing young man. He's going through changes. He's making mistakes, and we all do. We're big fans of his. I want to see him succeed. He has the tools to win this fight. It just comes down to up here with him, and I mean that in the most positive way. Having got a chance to know Dumas, it's all upstairs, man, and that's life, right? Most of the battle and everything we do in life is upstairs. It's not the physical. It's the mental, as they say, and even in sports, we think of like, oh, well, if you're not tall, you can't play basketball. 
We'll tell that to Spud Webb. Tell that to uh, Muggsy Bogues. Tell that to all the short guys that are playing in the NBA right now. Okay, so you can do it if you put your you know your mind to it. So in the case of Cedric Dumas, that's the last frontier with him because he has the tools. He's fluid to striking, nice kicking, good submission skills, so on and so on. As for Josh, Josh, why did I say Josh? Josh Tallman Fram. The dude is very tall. He's usually the bigger guy in most of his fights. In this fight, he won't be because Dumas is also very tall too. For Fram, he comes into this fight off of a nasty second round submission loss. I would encourage you to watch this loss. He was fighting Trejan Gore. Trejan Gore, I guess. Trejan Gore. And the fight was fairly close. In round two, early round two, Gore gets a guillotine because you've got my man Josh Frem trying to go for a double leg takedown, right? Got his neck exposed. You see Gore start working on the guillotine. At some point, Frem is fighting. He's fighting his ass off at the guillotine. I give him that. He gets put to sleep. Frem didn't tap out. He didn't do the Cyril Gone thing. Okay, he, he didn't tap. He went fully asleep. Unfortunately, after Gorgon lets go of his head, dude, you see just because of the angle, Frem's neck was so cranked that once he's put to sleep and Gore lets go, Frem's head snaps back, hits the ground. I would not be surprised if my man got a concussion along with being put to sleep. When they were waking him up, he looked ultra confused, like more than confused than you would be if you just got a submitted. More like I got concussed and submitted. Terrible loss. Very ugly look. The one fine line is that he had the balls to, again, not tap out. He was fighting it. You got to give him credit for that. Now, Frem had success in LFA, part of the UFC. His only loss in LFA was against Gregory Rodriguez, who's currently in the UFC. So his recent losses, all UFC caliber fighters, right? He's got pretty good finishing ability himself. He's earned finishes in seven of his nine wins, 78% finish rate. And Frem currently is 0-2 in the UFC, trying to turn that around and get his first win. He should be desperate here, right? Going 0-3 to start the UFC career could be a way to getting out of the UFC, right? So another bad loss could result in his release. He knows that the pressure is on. As for the spots we like, from a betting perspective, the spots we like the most are the fight going under two and a half rounds, the fight not going the distance at minus 300, Dumas inside the distance at minus 120, and Dumas by round one submission at plus 700. The other two and a half round prop is lined at minus 210. So, of course, you could tell by based upon our props and our bets, we're not thinking the fight goes a full distance. At some point, something gives either Dumas tires out because he doesn't have the cardio and we're suspecting he doesn't have it because we haven't seen it yet. Or Dumas, he's violent. Long arms. Okay, we want to talk about the long arms, actually. The length of the arms. Even though striking is evolving and getting better for Dumas, those long arms allow him to get those guillotines. He's got two standing guillotines in his record. Those are rare. Last fight in in contender series, he gets the standing guillotine. And so you see those long arms. You better be flexible to use those forearms as blades, get under the chin. We just saw, obviously, John Jones winning a, a title with this you know, guillotine choke. So that's one of the things that he has in his arsenal. And with those long arms and with a guy like Josh Frem, who got guillotine choked recently, you could sort of line it up and see it happening. So, again, our only concern for our man right here um, so decrease is that he might get tired. So hopefully Dumas, good cardio. I've seen him on the bike. He's been working out pretty hard. We want him to win the fight. We're rooting for him. So Dumas by round one submission, that's our pick. Let's move on. Moving up the card, next fight's going to be a bantamweight bout. 135 pounders, Rafael Sonso from Brazil versus Davy Grant from the United Kingdom. We like Grant to win the fight here, most likely by a late round TKO. Now, at first, our thought was, you know, Rafael's pretty durable, been around for a long time, bit of a veteran, been around the UFC for about almost 10 years. But man, recent fights have shown some chinks in the armor deterioration and sort of 
the telltale signs of a fighter who's getting older and sort of aging out. In the case of Grant, he needs a win here. He needs to get himself back into a winning streak. Three into his last five fights. A solid win here by finish would be the staple he needs to kind of, you know, make himself relevant again in this division. As for the details these two fighters, Rafael's 27-9 overall. Yeah, a lot of fights, right? One and four in his last five fights, a bit of a rough stretch. He is the dog here around plus 125 to plus 130, depending on what book you have him on. He's based out of Georgia now currently, but originally from Brazil. 40 years old in seven months, will be turning 41 this year. Five foot five and high, but a 66 and a half inch reach. He's out of Asunso Mixed Martial Arts Academy. No, I'm not Asunso. Asuncion? I don't know how to pronounce that, Jim. Anyway, as for Grant, who goes by Davey, Dangerous Grant, 12 and 6 overall, 3 to his last 5 fights. The favorite here around minus 160 to minus 175. Now based out of Las Vegas, Nevada, where he trains out of, I guess, SBG South Street and SBG Bishop Auckland. That doesn't make sense. He's probably in Las Vegas training out of a gym in Las Vegas. So those gyms that are listed there on Tapology are probably dated. Davey Grant is 37 years old, so it's now or never for him too. Doesn't have any time to waste. He is five foot eight. will be three inches taller than Rafael with a 69-inch reach, so about a two-and-a-half-inch reach advantage as well there for Davey Grant. On the outside, we can imagine Davey Grant has the advantage, should be able to land more strikes, has more volume. On the ground, different story. Rafael Sunso has not had a lot of finishes recently, but he's a guy who still has just natural jiu-jitsu ability. He's from Brazil, right? You have to expect it. All right, as for the notes on our breakdown here. So Davey Grant, by decision, that is our prediction. Rafael went professional in 2004, has enjoyed a very long, successful career. This fight will mark his 19th fight with the UFC. Wow. Now, during that time, the UFC has faced some legit talent. He's faced guys like Robert Font. Aljamain Sterling, Marlon Marais, uh, Pedro Munoz. So some of the best guys you can imagine during his time. In his prime, he probably wins this matchup. We mentioned before, this is not prime, Rafael, but in his prime, he probably outlasts Davy Grant and has enough to take him down, control time, so on and so on. But at 40 years old, he is far removed from his fighting prime years. His recent struggles, we think, are attributed to his age, deterioration, just normal slowing down, cardio, those kind of issues that you normally see from a fighter as they're slowing down. He's been finished now in three of his last five fights, and cardio is clearly part of the reason why he's also getting finished. It's not like he's getting just knocked out and hurt. He's slowing down, getting tired just out of the gas tank to do this anymore. I mean, look, he's been doing it for a long time. Is he slowing down mentally and physically? Yeah, maybe a combination of both. Is he still inspired to fight? Probably, but is he, is he inspired as he was maybe when he was 25, 26? Yeah, probably not. As for Grant, comes to this fight off the quality third round finish off of Ronnie Lawrence, a good fighter. You can argue off the bat, Ronnie Lawrence 2022-2023 is better than Rafael Sunso right now. So that win there gives you a kind of a measure. That's a quality win there for Davy Grant, and he got a finish in that matchup. Now, for Grant, his most recent defeats were against Marlon Vera and Adrian Yanez, both good fighters. Those are not you know, bad losses, not to mention they were by decision. You know what I'm saying? So Grant has demonstrated both fights that he can be durable, he could stay with the best in the division. He's never been knocked out. Been finished twice, but it was both by submission. So here's a guy who's got a pretty good chin. We don't see him getting knocked out by Rafael, right? Doesn't make a sense. Submission, that's always out there. But again, durability-wise, Grant, who's only been submitted twice over the course of his career, has shown that he's a very durable guy, can stay in the pocket, can trade with you, can take some to give some, so on and so on. Our two concerns for Grant. Number one, a little hittable. He absorbs about 4.02 strikes per minute. That's a little bit too many. I mean, two strikes per minute, that's a good range to be in, but four per minute over the course of obviously 15-minute fight, it adds up. And secondly, he has been submitted twice. If you want to like really peel back the layers, how can Hoffa win this fight? 
I would imagine something happens where it's a slip or a fall. Davy Grant is getting up, gives up his back or his neck. We see a Doris choke, something unique. Rafael's not known for sh- finishing, at least not recently, but he's still a veteran. And the submission ability, that never goes away. We've just seen a bunch of fights recently where fighters made a mistake. Next thing you know, they give their back and so on and so on, right? So from that standpoint, that's one of our two concerns for for Davy Grant is he gives up his back give up submission opportunity, or in the case of absorbing too many strikes. Though he is the more high-volume striker, and Hoffel is not known for his volume, and also sort, sort, of, sort of slows down. So from that standpoint, Davey should be okay. It's in Grant's best interest to keep this fight standing. Stay at distance, use his height and reach advantage, use his youth advantage, cardio, and so on and so on. We've enjoyed watching Hoffel Sonsoko fight for years. He's a veteran. He's a guy we all know, love, and appreciate. Never had any drama out of the octagon. He's, I wouldn't say a fan favorite, but a guy that's well-respected. <clears throat> He's had a very good run, tremendous career. This fight might be one of the last fights we see of him in the UFC, if not in mixed martial arts altogether. He's turning 41 this year. So could this even be his last fight? We don't know. For Davy Grant, he needs a win. He needs a solid win to stay relevant in this division. He's getting older. He's 37. will be 38 this year. So for him, it's also a bit of now or never. There's some pressure on him as well. We're expecting to see a very aggressive Davy Grant coming forward, leading with the volume, leading the pace, front kicks to the body, to the legs, basically wearing out the old man, Rafael Sunso. And at some point between rounds two and three, we see Grant pushing the pace enough where Sunso has to ball up and eventually the referee comes in and waves it off. We've got a TKO finish at some point, late round two, early round three. And we feel like if Grant can manage his distance and cardio, Find the right opportunity, and once Hoffel hits that cardio dump a little bit, jump on it, that should be the window. Now, if we go full decision because Hoffel is just a veteran and tough and doesn't give up easy, not surprised either. Even in that scenario, we still see Davey Grant winning the fight. The spots we like from a betting perspective are the fight going over a round and a half at minus 300. Fight starts round number two. That prop line's not out yet. Grant into the distance at plus 210. Grant by round three knockout at plus 1,050. Grant by round three knockout at plus 1,050. If you want to play the round two prop as well, that's probably around minus or plus 600 range. We just feel like, again, cardio, age, those factors, the best of Davy Grant can finish a Sunso here. A Sunso by submission is plus 1,200. It deserves a play. That's 10 bucks to win 120 bucks. Do you got an extra 10 bucks? Just throw it out there. That's the most likely path for a Sunso. Now, if you want to be more specific, what's the most likely path for a son? So not just submission, but when would that submission happen? Early. Full gas tank. Both guys are dry. So a son so by round one submission, that's plus 2,000. 10 bucks to make 200. Just putting it out there. We're going to be playing it. But a son so to win the fight, most likely that happens by a submission. My man, David Grant, makes a mistake. The veteran gets a submission. Look what just happened in the championship fight with John Jones and Cyril Gunn. Though it wasn't looked at as a veteran move, it was a veteran move by John Jones. Once he had that position against the fence, he started using his veteran savvy, found the right position, ended it early, walked out of there, unscathed, voila. So for Rafael Sonso, in the back of his mind, I'm thinking, you know, he wants to get out of there early with a finish. That would be nice instead of taking three rounds of punishment. So that first round prop is something we'll look at. Long story short here, we're on Davy Grant to win the fight. We hate to root against Rafael Sunso. We're not rooting against him, actually, but we just hate to choose against him. He's a veteran, a guy well-respected. 39 total fights will be his 40th total fight. Has good numbers. You know, his takedown offense, 1.47 takedowns per fight, 78% takedown defense. 
The guys fought a lot of good fighters, but in this matchup here, it's age. That's the, the biggest factor for us. We've kind of laid it out for you guys. That's why we're on the side of Davey Grant to win the fight, most likely by a round three TKO. That's our pick, guys. Let's move on. Next up, we have a heavyweight clash. 265-pounders, the big boys. Well, kind of big boys, because in the case of these two guys, they're actually really light heavyweights. Try to cameo as a heavyweight. We'll talk more about that as we do this breakdown here. But we have Carl Williams, 7-1 overall. Got a win on Contender Series in his last fight. That's what he got to this opportunity here for UFC. And Lucas Bresky, the bull, who's trying to find his first win in the UFC. We'll talk about his breakdown or his background, excuse me, as we go through his breakdown. But these two guys, I can't emphasize enough, are not natural heavyweights. Even in the event that they actually get a win here, move forward, at some point, they're going to get squashed by actual real 265-pounders uh, that are big guys. These guys are light heavyweights. They should be fighting a light heavyweight, and we'll keep emphasizing that as we go through this breakdown. For Lucas, you know, he comes in here with an interesting background from Poland, has fought over there, and, you know, fought some okay opponents, now fighting over here, having a struggle. Carl Williams, also, again, interesting background, light heavyweight, doesn't have much finishing ability, didn't have many finishes as a light heavyweight, so now he's moving up to heavyweight. It's, ugh. We like Carl Williams to win the fight by a boring wrestling decision. That's how we see it. If you've watched him fight recently, that's his MO. He'll grab you, hold on to you, bring you down. And in his last fight in Contender Series, it was especially impressive because he was fighting a guy who's a former Penn State wrestler. Anyway, back to the details of these two guys. For Lucas, 8-2-1 overall, 2-1-2 in his last five fights. That's an interesting last little five-fight streak. Out of Poland, 30 years old, 6-4, very tall in height, 78-inch uh, reach, and he's out of Spartacus Team Zakopane. As for Mr. Williams, 7-1 overall, similar amount of fighting experience, 4-1 in his last five fights. He's the slight favorite here at minus 170 range. He's an American, but was born in the Virgin Islands, which is an American territory, but specifically Virgin Islands is his home or his homeland. He's now based out of Atlanta, Georgia, 33 years old, six foot three in height with a 79 inch reach. He's an American top team in Atlanta. So reach wise, there's an ever so slight advantage there for Carl Williams. Height wise, about a one inch height advantage there for Lucas Bresky. Gym wise, I don't know about Spartacus teams, Zacho Payne, American top team in Atlanta. It's not the ATT down in Florida, not that high level but still has some pretty good guys. So I guess if you're going by the gym, slight edge for Carl Williams. On Tapology, Bresky is the favorite, getting 65% of the votes, 35% coming in for Williams. That surprises me. You know, I would think in a fight where it's closely matched, it would be the fighter who has the wrestling dynamic that you maybe would favor. And so from us, that's what we're doing here. We're favoring the guy who's got the wrestling dynamic. With that said, Bresky does have the striking advantage. We'll have more volume on his feet. We'll talk about that as we get to his profile. So let's get to the details here. Carl Williams, by decision, is our prediction. Williams surprised a lot of people in his contender series win just last year. He came to that fight on 10 days notice, and it was his first heavyweight fight after only fighting light heavyweight before. Moving up a weight class, 10 days notice, and fighting a guy who was a former Penn State wrestler. Penn State wrestler, Bo Nickel, right? You're thinking about that. He goes in here, Carl Williams, that is, as a smaller heavyweight, like weighing 227, 230 pounds, whatever, and out-wrestles his opponent as an underdog, wins the fight, going away, no question. Now, it was boring, but Dana gave him a contract because Dana was like, listen, you were the underdog, you came in late notice, and you got it done, dominant fashion, let's get you some training. He said, like, let's get you some training, see what you could do, make some improvements, and whatever else the case may be. This is a good matchup for Williams. It's another guy who's also not a natural heavyweight. So from size perspective, he's okay. For Williams, he's really a light heavyweight, cameoing, cameoing as a heavyweight. He's just not really made for this division. And at some point, he's going to be up against it against real big guys. For example, finishing power. He doesn't have it. 
His last four wins have been by decision. Three of those is light heavyweight. If he doesn't have the power to finish guys at that division, does he think he can just wrestle everyone out in the heavyweight division and, and have a career that way? Yeah, not going to happen. If he can't knock out guys that are 205 and he's barely holding on there, I don't see how 265 is going to make it happen for him. These monsters at this weight class. Like, imagine a guy like Alexander Romanov, who's also a wrestler, who's just way bigger and way much heavier. It's just going to be hard for him, right? Now, we don't blame him for doing this. It was probably like a a choice. Either take an opportunity for the contender series, right? Come here, UFC now as a heavyweight. Make a run of it. Or no, we don't want you. We need heavyweights. So you're seeing like a bunch of guys that are really not natural heavyweights now moving into heavyweight division. Think of the guy on um, Jolton Almeida. Almeida is a light heavyweight. No question. Could probably win a title at light heavyweight, right? He's fighting a heavyweight. Why? Because they just don't have any. He wants to get paid. And he could beat a lot of these bums anyway. So in the case of Carl Williams, he's part of that clan of guys who's coming into the UFC and just filling the void. We can't blame him for that. He's getting paid. Good for him. Now, as for Lucas, he's in a similar boat. He's also not a natural heavyweight. He's a guy who's taller, who would be much better suited at light heavyweight, carries some extra weight around the midsection that he definitely could lose. And as a heavyweight, he lacks power. Same thing, landing 6.86 strikes per minute. That's off the chain for heavyweights. But there's no power behind it. He's like the heavyweight version of Sean Strickland. Now, Sean Strickland does have a little bit of power at times, but you know how Sean Strickland fights. It's tons of you know volume. That's my man here, Lucas. Lots of volume, no power behind it. Meanwhile, if he fights a guy like, I don't know, let's say a guy like Blades or a guy like, um, I don't know, Volkov, any of these guys, one punch, they'll knock him out. Lucas doesn't have that power. He doesn't have one punch power, but he's in a heavyweight division where guys have that. So the ceiling for him, the potential is just low. I don't see it. He fights a guy like Aspinall or Tuibasa where just one punch over 15 minutes and you're done. He's out here landing seven strikes per minute. I'm just saying, it looks good in the scorecards if it gets there, but I don't think it's a long-term strategy for him to be successful in the heavyweight division. Light heavyweight, maybe. Now, up to now, Lucas has faced very average competition. Even the UFC, when he gets Potter and Budai. Now, Budai is 11-1, so that's not a bad loss by decision. The win over Potter got reversed because he went in there on the gear. He was on the juice, whatever. The droids, how you want to put it at. Got the win by submission. It was overturned because he was on the substance. And again, split decision loss to Budai. That wasn't so bad because Budai is 11-1 overall. That's maybe the best thing he's done so far in his career. If Williams can wrestle... He'll win the fight. He'll be successful on top. Slow the pace down. Slow down Lucas on the feet. If Lucas keeps the fight standing, he wins the fight. Just tons of ridiculous volume. It'll be annoying. And at some point, Williams will be just covering up. Like, I can't keep up with this guy. You know what I'm saying? Either way, the fight's probably going over two and a half and going the distance because of their fighting styles and their lack of finishing ability. The spots we like from a betting perspective are the fight going over a round and a half at minus 200. We'll parlay that spot right there. Minus 200, give it to me. Manja, manja. Fight goes over the distance, minus 110. I'm sorry, fight goes the distance, not over the distance. Fight goes the distance, minus 110. Williams by decision at plus 200. And Bresky by decision at plus 425. The split props are not available yet. The pricing's not out there, but we'll have that on our radar too. Maybe a last minute sprinkle on the split props because we can see the fight going close. We get some takedowns from Carl. Lots of volume from a man over here. Lucas. Ultimately, these guys are not finishers. This is going to be maybe one of the more boring fights on the card. It's a shame. It opens up, 
you know, the first heavyweight on the card is the last fight on the main on the prelim card. You kind of want something exciting, and um, I don't think we're going to get it here. So, yeah, we're on my man here, Williams, to win the fight by decision because of his wrestling. Should be close. Should be boring. That's your pick. Let's move on. And now uh, moving into the main card. First fight's going to be Vitor Petrino versus Anton Turkle. And before we get to the whole breakdown, we'll give you the pick right now. We like Vitor to win the fight by a round one knockout. That's our prediction. If you've watched this guy fight, you understand what we're saying this. This guy fights like his life's on the line. Every punch matters. He's trying to hit people like, I mean, he throws punches like he doesn't have a hand, like he doesn't have any pain. He throws so freaking hard. He's trying to hurt you, punch a hole through you. It's exciting. It has its downfalls. But in this fight, we see him connecting enough in round one to eventually put Anton Turkle away. This fight's priced at a great line, minus 110 both sides. So if you have a side you like more than the other, like we like Vitor, you're getting even money. Vitor, by first round knockout, sits at plus 350. That's what we're actually predicting. We'll see how we're going to play this. We'll talk some details. Let's start here with the particulars of these two fighters. For Vitor, undefeated at 7-0, out of Brazil, 25 years young, 6'2 in high with a 77 and a half inch reach, trained out of CM Systems. As for Anton, 8-1, very similar amount of experience. 4-1 his last five fights out of Sweden. He's a slight dog here. No, he's a pick'em. We're picking pride, right? Minus 110 both sides, excuse me. Anton again is out of Sweden, 26 years old. He's 6'4 in height with a 78 inch reach. So height and reach wise, the advantage is on the side of Anton Turkle. But he is not a striker, so the reach is not really going to be a big deal there or the height. For Anton, he trades out of GBG MMA. Never heard of it. As for CM Systems, where Vitor trades out of, I have heard of it. So gym-wise, a slight edge there for Vitor. On the public votes here, Patricia getting 74% of the votes here on Tapology, only 26% coming in for Turkle. We concur. We agree. Um, a little surprise it's that much in favor of Petrino. This fight can play out a few different ways. Uh, we don't see it going the full distance, that's for sure. As for Petrino, first round knockout, plus 350. We like it. That's his style. It's short and sweet. He's a nightmare to face. This guy throws punches with super duper heat. A matter of fact, you saw in his contender series fight where he was landing punches and the guy was like, damn, ooh, that hurt. Ooh, that hurt. And then eventually he finishes the guy, right? He throws punches as if like his life is on the line. Like he's trying to kill the person in front of him. Six of his seven wins have been by knockout, not by submission or no. Six of his seven wins have been by knockout. He's trying to, try, trying to wrestle you or submit you. He's trying to knock you the fuck out. Vitor earned his UFC contract by way of knockout last year on Contender Series. This fight will mark his UFC debut, so a UFC debutante. We love his intensity, his knockout power, the way he fights like his life is on the line. A little concern, though, about cardio. You see, he throws with so much heat and so much power, it's a matter of time. You can't fight like that for 15 minutes. He fights like that for about a round and a half. And in his Contender Series fight, it was about that round and a half where he got the knockout. But the... 30 seconds before that knockout, the minute before that knockout, he was slowing down a lot, throwing punches that had nothing behind it and kind of falling a little bit. He ends up connecting on a perfect counter left hook that knocks out his opponent, but he was showing signs of fatigue. Now, Anton is going to test that. Anton wants to grapple. He wants to hold on to him, wants to drain the gas tank. If Vitor is not careful, he'll have Anton holding on to him will drain his gas tank and then find himself up against it, excuse me, with a guy like Anton who's hanging on to him. For Anton, he isn't the most exciting fighter, but he does get the job done. He'll immediately go for tangling up opportunities, legs, arms, look for the back. He loves getting on the opponent's back, work from there, look for submissions, so on and so on. Like Petrino, he also has a high finish rate. 
Seven of his eight wins are by finish. Now, unfortunately, the UFC served him up Jilton Almeida on his UFC debut. You can imagine how that went. Almeida is a freaking monster himself. Almeida chewed him up, got it to the ground, and got a rear naked choke. Noticeable in that fight was this. Anton Turkle is a wrestler, submission guy, grappler. That's what he does. That's what he does best. He looked like shit in the ground against Jolton Almeida. Just putting it out there. So Anton might be a good grappler, but against better grapplers, elite grapplers, you couldn't see it. He got overwhelmed, taken down. And for Jolton Almeida, he was a smaller guy. He was even smaller than Anton. Just putting it out there. Alton has good ground skills. He'll need them in this fight. His striking numbers are a bit pedestrian. He's landing 1.13 strikes per minute, absorbing 1.85. That's more indicative of his fighting style, right? So he's a guy who's on the ground. He's not on the feet, landing combinations. Doesn't land very much in the ground. Position control, looking for grappling opportunities, submissions, and absorbs about 1.85 per minute. That's not a high absorption rate, but it is a negative striking ratio. Now, standing, the fight should be in the hands of Vitor. He's the guy who's... Got power, he's coming to hit you hard. For Anton, that first seven and a half minutes of the fight, that first round and a half, needs to be very careful not staying in Vitor's range for too long a period of time or else he get knocked out. Vitor's a wild man. He will throw punches with reckless abandon. At some point, he can send my man Anton to the upside down. Remember that show, Stranger Things? He can send Anton to the upside down with one punch. So Anton needs to stay away from long, prolonged exchanges on the feet, has to grapple, keep it in close. Either Anton is able to enforce his grappling, get takedowns, and drain the gas tank of Vitor, or Vitor is going to send Anton on a roller coaster ride. One of the two. We're hoping it's going to be Vitor sending my man Anton to the Never Never Land because it'll be more entertaining, be more fun. Otherwise, we're watching my man over here, Anton, holding on to Vitor for about 15 minutes and draining him ever so slowly. Kind of boring. Now, if you like Anton to win, you'll be happy, he'll be safe, he'll be okay. It just won't be nearly as exciting. The betting spots we like the most for this fight are the fight doesn't go the distance, the under two and a half rounds, Vitor by TKO, which is at plus 140, Vitor by first round knockout at plus 350, Vitor by second round knockout is plus 700. You see the numbers go spiking up because there's a cardio issue. If he can't knock him out in round one, round two gets harder, so on and so on. But we're going to sprinkle both props. Anton into the distance at plus 220 and Anton to win in round three at plus 900. Why are we putting money on Anton? Well, here's the thing. If we get a past a round and a half, then now we're in the territory where Vitor, the power goes down, he's reckless, it'll be easier for Anton to tie him up. At that point, Anton by the distance, or Anton, I'm sorry, Anton inside the distance, or Anton by a round three finish of some kind because he just wears out Vitor is very likely by submission or TKO. So again, to go back to these props here that we like here, the fight does not go the distance. Fight under two and a half rounds. Vitor by TKO, Vitor by round for round one KO, Vitor by second round KO, Anton inside the distance, and then Anton to win in round three at plus 100. Those are the props that we'll be looking at for this fight. For our full bet tip sheet, so you know exactly what we're playing, make sure you subscribe to our Substack newsletter. That link is down below. It's the first link down our video description down here on YouTube. And subscribe to the newsletter. You get our full tip sheet. It's entirely free. And if not, you can also go to our Google Drive. That link is also down below. On our Google Drive, we have full breakdowns written up, Word document format, also data sheets, Excel sheets, charts, the whole nine. But in there, you'll be able to also to access our tip sheet for all of our bets for UFC Vegas 71 and any events we break down here. So we do a breakdown on our channel. There's also a, a folder there, usually on our Google Drive, that actually corresponds with the breakdown and gives you the raw data behind the scenes of all the research we've done, saving you thousands and thousands of hours of time over the course of a year. That's what we're here for.
That's your breakdown, guys, though. We're going to go with my man. Oh, it's it's You know what? I'll tell you what. I feel like I'm picking Vitor, and I'm regret it because Anton's got the wrestling and got the cardio. But no, we're going with Vitor to win the fight. Round one knockout. That's our prediction, guys. Let's move on. Okay, next fight in the card is going to be a Bantamweight bout. 135 pounds. Saeed Nurmagomedov, the Russian from Mashkala, Russia, versus Jonathan Martinez, who goes by the Dragon, the American fighter. Before we get into details, we like Martinez to win the fight by decision. He opened as like a plus 175-ish underdog. He's now plus 200 and growing. Let the money come flowing in on Saeed. No disrespect to Saeed. He is a good fighter, but the last name, his Dagestani roots, he gets the bump on the money line, and we're looking to take advantage of that bump. We're going Martinez to win the fight by decision. As for the basics on these two fighters here, for Saeed, 7-2 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. About to be 31 years old, 5'8 in height, so is Martinez. 70-inch reach for Saeed, 69.5 for Martinez. So reach-wise and height-wise, there is no really benefit to either side. Saeed's out of dogfighter, and Martinez trains out of different breed MMA. As for Martinez, 17-4 and four overall, almost the same amount of experience. Also, 4-1 in his last five fights. He is the dog here at plus 200. You can get Saeed at minus 250 currently. Martinez is out of Texas with the last name Martinez. He's probably Mexican-American, and now is the time to be a Mexican fighter, right? There's currently two and a half or three champions in the UFC that are of Mexican descent. So with Martinez, he may not be Mexican-born, but he can maybe ride the wave of the Mexican fighters, right? Anyway, Martinez is 29 years old or about to be 29, so the same wheelhouse age-wise as Saeed. And again, size-wise, very similar to Saeed. What's going on in Tapology? What do they have to say here? Oh my gosh. So Saeed Nurmagomedov is getting 86% of the votes here on Tapology. Only 14% coming in from Martinez. You see, this is the thing. They see the last name Nurmagomedov. They think it must be Khabib's brother, cousin, uncle, aunt. You get my drift. It's not his aunt. You get the point. It's someone related to him. He's from Machkala, Russia. He, he's Dagestani. He's got the, the strap. So on and so on. I'm, I'm telling you now, pump the brakes. The same way Shevchenko was bound to lose eventually, the same way these guys get this extra bump that are from Dagestan. In the case of this fight here, it's a prime example because Martinez, there's no reason why he should be a significant underdog in this fight. He's very well matched everywhere. Okay, let's look at our breakdown notes here for this fight. So we might like Martinez to win by decision. That's plus 375 if you follow us here on this. Martinez is a very balanced fighter, has more output than Saeed. He's averaging 4.84 strikes per minute, and he's got 70% takedown defense. The takedown defense is fairly key in this fight, but you'd be surprised. Saeed only averages like 0.52 takedowns per fight himself. So he's not as much of an active wrestler as you would think. Again, the perception being that he's from Dagestan, the perception being that he's Khabib's brother and that he fights just like him. <coughs> <coughs> perception can throw you off sometimes, right? So he's not that kind of fighter. He doesn't fight that way. Back to Martinez. He comes to this fight off of an impressive knockout win over Cub Swanson. Now, knockout or TKO based upon the actual tapology sheet or the paperwork, but you go back and watch the fight. It was a lower leg kick, and he was beating the hell out of, of Cub Swanson at the end of round one. It almost got stopped at that point because he knocked down Cub Swanson with like a knee to the head. Dominant performance by Martinez, and with Cub Swanson, he may not be top five or top ten material right now, but he's a tough dude, not an easy out. So that's an impressive TKO win there. By Cub Swanson. Now, our concerns for Martinez are pretty straightforward and simple. The concerns that you maybe have as well. Number one, finishing ability. Doesn't really have it. Four of his last five wins have been by decision. Ground defense. 
His ground defense is okay, but we know that Saeed is not okay on the ground. Saeed's unique on the ground, elite level. So from that standpoint, Martinez has to be on his P's and Q's. But again, surprisingly enough, Saeed only averages 0.52 takedowns per fight. If you're thinking about just the numbers, don't think about perception here. He's not a takedown type of fighter, and Martinez has 70% takedown defense. Martinez should be able to defend most of the takedowns and keep the fight in the feet. Just saying. Now, are the concern for Martinez the, the finishing ability, right? When you're not able to finish fights, then who's going to decide the fight for you? The judges. This is the worst fight. I mean, it's the worst sport in the world to leave the judges in the hands or your future in the hands of the judges. We know they could do anything and everything, and they have no consequences. In the case of Martinez, we know that those new Magomedov names, the Russian names, they're popular. Do you want to go to a close decision against a guy who's been getting close decision wins in the past, who might get the rub here by the judges? No, Martinez is at risk of getting fooked on the scorecards by the judges if he keeps going to decisions, and he's already lost by decision before by a split, I think, to Andre Ewell. Point is this, he needs to up the finishing ability, take the fight into his own hands, because otherwise... He's at risk of where the judges think they might see, and this could be a close fight. Has all the makings of being a close fight. All right, as for Saeed Nurmagomedov, he sports an impressive record, along with entering this fight on a four-fight winning streak. Excuse me. Man, my allergies. The last time he lost was almost four years ago. Saeed has an elite, he has elite submission skills like many of the Dagestani brothers that he... Saeed has elite submission skills like his Dagestani brothers. It's part of their like milieu. The old kids all grow up over there just wrestling, submitting people. They must be like outside in the street just submitting each other, right? <laughs> anyway, he won his last bout by submission. Round two, after appearing to be losing that fight, he looked like he was losing round one and losing round two against Kakramanov, but came back, got a nice guillotine choke in round number two, and has won two of his last three fights by a guillotine choke. So obviously that's part of his arsenal. Saeed gets a bump on the money line. We talked about this already. He gets that extra bump, being from Dagestan, the roots, the affiliation to Khabib Nurmagomedov. We like him. He is a very good fighter, and he has room to even get better. But should he be lined as a two-and-a-half-to-one favorite over Martinez? No. No, no, he should not. So for that reason alone, we're right there inclined. Like, instinctually, we have to take a closer look at the underdog in this fight. We don't want to let the money line distract us from picking the actual fighter that's going to win. Sometimes we can do that in the whole capping business. Like, oh, it's plus money. We're going for the dog. Who's going to win the fight? Period. Let's look at it from that standpoint. And from that standpoint, we're still on Martinez. We think Martinez has enough to match Saeed on the feet. On the ground, he's serviceable. And can he hit the feet? I think he can. Saeed needs to get the fight to the ground to take advantage of Martinez there. I'm not sure that he can. So with plus money... Plus 200 money, we're taking a shot at Martinez. We're on it. We like it. We like him to win the fight. And it really should be a coin flip. The betting spots we like the most of this fight are the fight going over two and a half rounds at minus 160. Fight goes a distance at minus 140. Martinez by decision at plus 375. Saeed by submission is plus 450. If you like Saeed, that's the path to victory, right? Two of his last three fights, he's gotten guillotine chokes. He will get some grappling going at some point. You're hoping so. And he gets submission. That would be the path to victory for him. Now, looking at the numbers, right? Who gets more strikes? It's Martinez. He averages like 4.84 per minute. And I think Saeed's sitting around like three and a half per minute. So again, on the feet, the numbers suggest Martinez is landing more, throwing more, has more volume, is the better puncher. We may even sprinkle the split decision props for both fighters because they've both been to split decisions in recent fights. And so it tends to be indicative of their fighting style. All that said, deep breath here. We are on Martinez to win the fight. He's a live dog in this spot and it most likely happens by decision. Let's move on. 
All right, boys and girls, next fight in the car is going to be a featherweight battle. 145-pounders Ricardo Ramos from Brazil versus Austin Lingo, the American fighter from Texas. This will be a pretty short and sweet breakdown. we got a good, strong lean towards Ramos. we like him to win the fight. More than likely into the distance, our concerns with Lingo are long layoff, durability, competition, so on and so on. But with that said, we'll jump into the full breakdown with you guys in a second. Just a reminder, again, we like Ramos to win the fight. It's the distance, most likely around two, around three finish of some kind. So Ramos, 16-4 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He's out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, 27 years old. 5-under height with a 72-inch reach. Height and reach-wise, these guys are similar. A slight reach advantage there for Ramos and a slight height advantage for Lingo. Ramos trains out of Team Alpha Male. Also, some training out of a gym called China Team. As for Lingo, who goes by lights out, he's 9-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. He's the dog here, sitting around plus, let's say, 245-ish range. And you got Ramos at minus 275. Plus 220, minus 275, that's the current price. So obviously, Ramos is quite a big favorite at this time, which I don't know if I agree with him being that much of a favorite, but I do think Ramos is the rightful favorite in this bout. Okay, more details here. So for Lingo, 28 years old, almost the same age, 5'10", 70-inch reach, and again, out of Fortis MMA. So, look, here's the thing on these two fighters. There's a lot of things about Lingo that you can like. The forward pressure. He forces opponents to work off their back foot. He comes forward. He's very durable, has never been finished in his entire pro career. You like all those things. He's a bit of a tough guy. Lands about four strikes per minute, absorbs 3.82. Could be better with the striking defense, and you see that when he fights, kind of walks forward and blocks punches with his face. Takedown offense, not much. Only 0.67 takedowns per 15 minutes. So not much of a wrestler or a takedown guy. Does like to work you, though, against the fence. Dirty box you. That's where he does some of his best work. Again, very durable there. One concern we have for him, he's a bleeder. My man will start leaking blood. It just takes one little elbow or some kind of punch to the nose, and he's leaking. So that's a concern because in bouts nowadays, the judges are supposed to be judging for, what, damage? That's the biggest factor, right? So he's a bit of a bleeder. That's a concern. He also stands very heavy on his front leg. Leave that front leg open and available to be kicked. So that's a concern for us as well when it comes to the fighting style of Austin Lingo. Now, Lingo fought Zalal. Zalal has now since been let go by the UFC. When they fought, that was about three fights ago, Zalal and him went to the full distance and he actually lost the fight by decision to Zalal. Zalal's not a terrible fighter, but it gives you a measure of kind of where Lingo's at. He's losing to fights like that to guys like that who are no longer in the UFC. And then one more thing, not been active for about a year. Lingo had a knee injury or leg injury. He had two fights canceled last year. He backed out of both of them. Those were what they call red flags. You know, on the other side here, we've got my man Ramos, who's a little bit more active, who's been fighting now, what, fought like two, three times last year between grappling and mixed martial arts. Also fought about three times, 2021. Very active, also active in the octagon. Lands about 3.32 strikes per minute and also takes down his opponents at a 2.58 takedowns per rate per fight. That is very good. If he could take down Lingo a few times in this fight, sets up some submission opportunities, that could be his path to victory. Now, absorbing too many strikes, we don't like that about Ramos. He's absorbing 3.82 per minute, so has a negative striking ratio. And durability is a bit of a concern. Of his four defeats, he's been finishing three of those. And so, yeah, want to see that get better. If you're going to lose, lose by decision, but don't get finished. So negative striking ratio, durability, and then trading punches. It's exciting for fans when, when, when fighters just stand and trade. And so for Ramos, he'll do that. It is exciting, but it's a dangerous fighting style. It's a bit reckless. You know, we like a lot of things about Ramos. He's the better overall fighter. He's fought better competition. He's shown good toughness. And he has shown a good chin in prior fights. For example... Against Tugoff, I guess the guy's name is Tugoff. They went back and forth. Like, they were just hitting each other with as hard as much as they could. 
He was bleeding, took off his bleeding, and then went back and forth and basically showed he is pretty durable, I guess, when he sees the punches coming, right? But anyway, there's some holes in Ramos's game. For this matchup, I wish the line was a little bit better. It's kind of priced in a range where you don't love it. We see the fight, though, going at least over a round and a half. We like that spot. We like Ramos to win the fight inside the distance. And then if you want to parlay Ramos here, I think you're safe. Those are the three spots we like the most for this fight. Let's move on. All right, making our way up the main card. Next one's going to be a catchweight bout. 215 pounds between Nikita Krylov and Ryan Spann. This fight has red flags all over it. I'm telling you right now, if you want to skip a fight from a betting perspective, this might be the one. Unless you have a tremendous read, you might be better off saving your money. And I wouldn't be surprised if this fight falls off the card somehow. Of course, we know this fight was on UFC Vegas 70. It was supposed to be the main card for that event, which was like two weeks ago. And then last minute, Nikita Karloff arrived to the actual event that night. Like, I mean, three or four fights before he's supposed to go in there. He's announced as being sick or ill or food poisoning, whatever. Then Ryan Spann had the press conference, seemed pretty frustrated, so on and so on. There's so many different factors here that are implicating why we don't think it's a good fight to bet on. We'll go through it with you. But I'm just telling you right now, if you want to pass on a fight, this is the one. We're going with Nikita Krylov to win. We are not confident at all. We were on him to win the first time around two weeks ago. We're staying on him, and that's more because we're trying to stick to our, our proverbial guns on this and not change spots. I'll tell you that after Kratoff missed that first fight and he was the one that backed out, of course, you're thinking, oh, that's not a good sign for him, medical issue, whatever the case may be. You kind of want to move towards Ryan Spann. But this has happened before. We don't want to overreact. I even wonder in prior fights if this is same scenario has happened where it's been moved back or backed up, who benefits more? It reminds me of the Henry fight. Remember Henry was fighting Barcelos? That was last year. The fight got moved back, and then the fight got closer for some reason, the money line, and then, of course, Henry went out there and upset Barcelos. In this case, it's opposite. Krylov was the favorite before. Now he's the bigger favorite for some reason. He was like a minus 165 to 170 favorite before. Now he's minus 175. I, I don't know. I don't understand what's going on here. Um... I question Ryan Spann's mental status after that last cancellation. He looked like genuinely pissed off. He looked angry. He looked, um, which is justified given that he was ready to fight whenever else the case may be. And then maybe there's financial implications, whatever else. But he went from being on a main card and the main event of that card, an apex card, so now they're on the main card, but they're not the main event anymore, which also impacts their their money because you get paid more as the main event. Listen, there's a lot of shit going on here, <laughs> okay? And I'm just telling you that from that perspective, how will this impact both fighters? I don't think it impacts Ryan Spann well. I don't. I think the, 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 the emotional up and down, a guy who's had cardio issues, now the two extra weeks, um, I don't think it affected him well. No, no. So... Let's talk details. We'll give you our rundown here. We're going to read through the entire breakdown for you. But again, I would really be cautious about betting on this fight because it feels to me like something unexpected could happen. Krylov, 29-9 overall, 3 to his last five fights out of Ukraine. He's 30 years old, six foot three in height, very tall with a 77.5-inch reach. He trains out of YK Promotion. As for Mr. Span, who goes by Ryan Superman Span, you get it? Superman Span kind of rhymes. 21-7 overall. Three to his last five fights. He's out of Beaumont, Texas, or Beaumont. I'm pricing that incorrectly. 31 years old. So same wheelhouse age-wise. 6'5. That's not accurate. Ryan Spann is not 6'5. Ryan Spann is more like six foot three or six foot four. They're about the same height. 
Now, Ryan Spann's reach, 81 and a half inches. I can't say that's not true, but he probably has longer arms than Krylov, who doesn't have very long arms. So Ryan Spann will have a reach advantage and Spann's out of Fortis MMA, a very good gym. What's Tapology doing here? So Tapology has Krylov as the favorite. 54% of the votes coming in for Krylov, 46% coming in Excuse me for Spann. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. This fight is down the middle. It, it should be very close. And uh, it, it, we expect a close fight until Span gasses out. All right, so here's our breakdown here. Krylov into the distance at minus 110. That is our prediction. That was our prediction two weeks ago. At that time, it was minus 100. Now it's minus 110. Hasn't moved very much. Nikita's a veteran. He's fought the better fighters. He's 30. He's got 38 fights under his belt. The guy's been around for a minute. He's faced good competition. Guys like Glover Teixeira, uh, Blahovitz. Uh, and Goliath, these are name brand guys. These are guys much heavier opponents, much harder opponents. Than what Ryan Span has faced, Ryan Span has faced guys like you know, smiling, smiling, smiling Sam Alvey, right? Guys like that. Okay. Uh, back to Nikita, he's got a high finish rate, eighty-seven percent finish rate to be specific. Usually employs a little bit of wrestling into his game plan, which we like. He averages just over two takedowns per fight. That's a key number because later in the fight, if Span gets tired. That could be a way for you know Nikita to take control of a round, get the fight to the ground, get some top control. In clinch situations, he knows how to utilize his knees. Unfortunately, Nikitov has been also a little bit of a tough streak recently the last few years. He's 4-4 four four in his last eight fights. That's 500 for those who are looking for the quick math. Durability is also becoming a concern for him. He's been finished in seven of his nine defeats. At times, you have to question his decision-making as well. Against Paul Craig, what was Nikita doing? We all remember that fight. It was about a year and a half ago. He's on top of Paul Craig for the better part of round one. He's beating the shit out of Paul Craig, but his corner's yelling like, get up, get out of there, get the fuck up, get out of there. And he's like, no, no, I got it, I got it, I got it. And what happens? He gets submitted, he gets submitted. So, you know, for a guy who's been around for so long, why, why? Listen to your corner, don't be stubborn, don't try to prove something, you're not that good of a grappler. Bottom line needs to be, you know, a little more disciplined. Against Otismir, he got to a dangerous situation because he got to a, a slugfest. Again, low fighter IQ moment. Decides to go back and forth with this guy, slugging back and forth. He got cracked. He was very lucky to come away with the win there because at, at some point in that fight, he was very hurt. So bottom line with Nikita, he's a little bit of a reckless fighter. We love it from the entertainment standpoint, the lights and the, the blood, the, the, the gore of it. But damn, dude. <laughs> like, damn, dude. Reel it in a little bit. Calm the fuck down. Listen to your coaches, right? Nikita Krylov, not a guy you would think of as having bad fighter IQ. Now, as for Ryan Spann, he's like, listen, I got your fighter IQ. Hold my beard, dude. I've got terrible fighter IQ. I'm good for the first round and a half, and then I'm checking out. That's pretty much Ryan Spann's MO. He's a very talented athlete, excellent punching power. You could just tell by his physique, his movement, the guy's got it. His finish rate speaks for itself. 86% finish rate. Impressive. Span earned his UFC contract with a 21-second submission win on Contender Series in 2018. His jab is lethal. It's heavy. When we say heavy jab, it lands, and then for some reason, it like lands like a ton of bricks. So he's got this really heavy jab. It could do damage. It can cut up his opponent. He's knocked down people, actually knocked down people in the UFC with that damn jab. His jab is sharp and heavy, as we mentioned before. His ground game is limited, but he has some submission ability. So when I say limited, he gets tired, he gets sloppy, but on the ground has submission ability. He's got recent wins over Dominic Reyes and Ian Kutalaba. That is pretty impressive. You wouldn't expect it. Again, a guy who's kind of under the radar, but he's got good ability. He knocked out Reyes and submitted Kutalaba. Finished both guys, right? Against Anthony Smith and Johnny Walker, a little bit of a different story. And here's where that line of demarcation is. 
where's the above and where's the below? And he's kind of below that line. So guys like Kutalaba, guys like Reyes, he handles them. Guys like Smith and Walker, different situation. He got finished in the first round by Smith and Walker. So he didn't even get out of the first round with those guys. So bottom line is this. Against okay competition, looks pretty good. Against above competition or against you know above average competition, he struggles. So where is Nikita on that scale? Nikita can look below average sometimes. He can look above average sometimes. It's like, what are you going to get from him? So that's why this fight is very close in many ways. Even the line right now on the side of Nikita is probably not correct. It should be more like around a pick em because both guys, both guys have holes, put it that way. Our biggest concern for Span is the endurance beyond round one. So in round one early on, he looks pretty good. He's going to be pretty pissed off, right? He wanted to fight two weeks ago. He should come out here chipping his shoulder, right? Maybe he gets too emotional, blows his proverbial wad in round one, gets tired and can't function in round two and three. If he cannot hurt Nikita in round one, if he can't get him out of there in round one, you're, you're worried now. If you're holding a span ticket and it's in round two or three, you're just, you're worried. He's going to slow down. He's not going to look as clean. Nikita will slow down too, but Ryan Span really slows down. All right, so Span is the better athlete and probably hits a little bit harder than Krylov. We do want to make sure we clarify that. But we just can't get behind a guy who's got cardio issues. That's a common theme. Cardio concerns are just fighters that will watch you. We'll play some props here, but we can't get behind you outright to win. With that said, Nikita has a knack for dropping the baton himself. Look what he did against Paul Craig, a fight that he was winning, and he found a way to freaking lose. So based on Nikita's 500 record over his last eight fights, four and four, and his two-fight winning streak, he's probably due for another loss. That also sucks. Like, he's won two in a row. He's probably due for an L here at this point. Nikita hasn't won three fights in a row since 2017, dude. About six years was the last time that he won three in a row. He's going for now three in a row. Do you see? The numbers are stacked against him here. Any case, Nikita hasn't won three fights in a row in a while, but we think he breaks that trend. We think he finally gets the damn shit done. He finally gets himself back into a winning streak right here. In closing, we have absolutely zero confidence in either fighter. Zero confidence either way. We're going with Krylov, but, you know, Go Ukraine. We love Ukraine. Hopefully they, they get rush out of there and get things back to normal. So we're not going to pick against Ukrainian fighter. We're going pro-Ukraine, you're the mother Ukraine. We expect this fight to end in a way that we just can't even predict. It's going to be weird. Something will happen. Ryan Spam maybe knocks out Krylov in round one. I don't know. Anything's possible here. The betting spots we like the most for this fight are the fight going under two and a half rounds. That's minus 350. Krylov into the distance, that's minus 110. The fight does not go the distance, minus 450. So even the books are saying, listen, there's going to be violence. There will be blood. And the fight does not start round three. That line's not available yet, but I would look at that line when it comes out. A round three finished by Krylov is currently lined at plus 1100. 10 bucks to make $110. We'll play it. We're looking at it this way. Maybe the fight gets to round two or three. Now we have Ryan Span full zombie mode. You know, barely functional, can't throw anything, just whew, exhausted. And Karloff has just enough to put him out and finish the fight in round three, plus 1,100. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Moving up the main card. Next fight's going to be a heavyweight clash between Alexander Volkov versus Alexander Romanov. Two Russian-ish fighters. Moldova is not Russian, but they speak Russian there. So the Moldovan fighter Alexander Romanov goes by King Kong against Alexander Volkov, who goes by Drago. Before we dive into the whole breakdown, we'll tell you that we like Volkov to win the fight by a round three TKO. That's currently lined at plus 1900. So we're going to sprinkle that prop there and hopefully we're right. But we think Volkov has what it takes to outlast Alexander Romanov, eventually find himself into a TKO win. If you've seen Romanov recently, his last few fights, the first few fights in the UFC, 
has been impressive at times, has shown some cardio issues, has had some layups against guys like Jared Vandera and guys like Chase Sherman. Ultimately, that 16-0 undefeated record came crashing to a halt in his last fight where he lost to Marcin Tyburo. And these guys have both fought my Marcin Tyburo. We'll talk about the results of both of them fighting him. All that said, guys, we'd like Volkov to win the fight by a round three TKO. That is our pick. Let's get into the details here. For Volkov, who goes by Drago, 35 and 10 overall, man, 45 total mixed martial arts professional fights. Very impressive. Three and two in his last five. Based out of Moscow, Russia, 34 years old. 6'7 in height with an 80-inch reach. Very tall, very long out of Strela team. When it comes to height and reach, he'll have a five-inch height advantage and about a five-inch reach advantage. That helps him on the feet, of course, at range, kicking, kneeing, striking. But if you know Romanov, he wants to get in close, bring it to the ground. That could be a problem for the very long Volkov in terms of like getting back up or having issues with leverage. For Romanov, King Kong, 16-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights, coming in here off of his first ever loss. Out of Conrad Moldova, 32 years young, only two years younger. So when we think of like Volkov as being around forever, 45 total fights, and he has fought for a while, these guys are only two years apart. Six foot two for Romanov, 75 inch reach, and he's out of Lion Club Comrade. As for the votes coming in on Tapology, by no surprise, Volkov is getting more votes, 60% to be exact. That's where we're at. I think Romanov, to be quite frankly with you, is a guy who has some ability, just needs to shore some things up, has to show us more, and I think he needs to show the public more before people start getting behind him. As for the breakdown of this fight, let's go into details. We'd like Volkov to win the fight by a round three knockout. This fight is a classic example of the old guard versus the new guard. Two years apart in age, but in terms of experience, Volkov's fought a lot, has been around for a minute. Romanov, pretty new onto the scene. Now, Romanov got off to a hot start in his career with a 16-0 record. In the process, he was gifted guys like Espino, guys like Chase Sherman, guys like Vandera. Now, the Espino fight, let me talk about that fight. Because ever since that fight, I've kind of had like a negative connotation of Romanov. It's my humble opinion that he was losing that fight. He was getting tired, and because he got hit with a groin shot, he decided, you know what? I want no more parts of this. So quite frankly, didn't deserve to win that fight, but got the win, kind of skirted along. From there, they gave him Vandera and Sherman. UFC just gave him layups. Easy wins, right? Easy guys to beat up. But then he fights Marcin Tybro's last fight, gets ahead in round one. It's looking good. He goes from minus 360 opening line to probably like minus 1,000 the live line. He's kicking Marcin Tyburo's butt, but he can't finish him, and Marcin survives to round two. And that's all it takes. Go to round two against Alexander Romanov, and you got him. Because then in round two, Marcin takes over the momentum, takes down Alexander Romanov. Romanov shows durability, not getting finished, but exhausted. Can't do much. So beyond round one, we know Romanov is not in comfortable territory. Now, as for Volkov, he's got his own issues. He's definitely got his own bag of concerns, and he's by far not a you know a perfect fighter by any means. Volkov needs to do two things to ensure victory here. Number one, keep it standing. That goes without saying. He's longer, much longer. On the ground is where Romanov wants it to be. So needs to pay attention to defending the takedowns, especially early on. Doesn't want to get finished in round one by the onslaught of Romanov. Second thing is, on top of keeping it standing, make sure you just get to round two. Even if you get taken down in round one, even if you give up position control, even if you get beat up a little bit like Marcin Tyburo did, just get your ass to round two. We know that Romanov has a problem in round two. So those are the keys to victory for Volkov. Can he do it? 45 total mixed martial arts fights, a lot of experience coming in here off of a knockout in his last fight against a good heavyweight. You know, it, he should be able to use his experience 
to get this fight to round two, right? If he does those two things, he should be successful. Romanov has nothing to offer after round one. I want to emphasize that. Round one, he needs to get a finish. If you're betting on Romanov, it's that round one submission prop. That's where you want to look at because beyond that, he's just mush. The spots we like from a betting perspective here are the fight going over a round and a half because we do feel like both guys are durable enough that we do get to that point of over a round and a half, and that is to our liking because we think that, again, that goes towards Volkov's side with him being a little bit better with cardio and Romanov having trouble there. That's minus 165 for the fight going over a round and a half. The fight starts round two. That line's not available. We'll take a peek, a peek at that when it does become available. Romanov by round one submission is plus 575. That's not that outrageous of a price tag because, again, the market recognizes that's most likely his path to victory, too, is that round one submission, some kind of an arm lock or something or key lock. And then Volkov by round three knockout is plus 1,900. Does that move around? Probably does. We just like Volkov later in the fight. We think Romanov could slow down. Now, could we go to the scorecards and have a close decision or Volkov wins by decision because he's got more volume? Yeah, but what's the fun in that? It's heavyweight battle. We should see a finish. We should be rooting for a finish. We're going Volkov by round three TKO plus 1900. That's our prediction, guys. Let's move on. And we're up to the main event. Bantamweight battle, 135 pounders. Peter Yan, the former UFC champion versus Marab Vashvili. No belt on the line, but an important bout for both fighters. Of course, for Peter Yan, wants to get himself back into a position to contend for the title that he lost. And for Marab Vashvili, wants a chance to contend for the title, right? Peter Yan is 16 and 4 overall. Bit of a rough stretch recently at 2 and 3 in his last five fights. Out of Russia, 30 years old, 5'7 in height with a 67 inch reach. And he trains out of Tiger Muay Thai. You may have heard of that gym before. As for Marab Dvashvili, he goes by the machine. 15 and 4 overall. Nice streak for him. 5 0 in his last five fights out of Georgia. Now training out of New York, 32 years old, 5'6 in height with a 68 inch reach. And he trains out of Sarah Jiu Jitsu. As for the public votes on Tapology, Yan is a big favorite. And we agree. We like Yan to win the fight. Quite frankly, a little surprised the main line is not a little more in favor of Jan, but fuck it. We like it. <laughs> now, minus 225 for Jan. We're going to jump all over that as a parlay piece. Maybe not betting it straight up, but we'll talk about it. Let's go over the full details for you, give a breakdown of this fight. So Peter Jan, by the decision, that is our prediction. Even though Jan has been through a lot the last few years, let's not forget the kind of fighter that he was, his background, his pedigree, what he's capable of. I think casual mixed martial arts fans will look at his tapology and be like, oh no, a bunch of red, right? So he's been through a gamut of emotions the last few years. I can argue though in a parallel universe, universe, I could argue that in a parallel universe, he could be 19 and one instead of 16 and four. He comes into this fight off of back-to-back -back split decision losses. So clearly two judges thought he won those fights. He could have won those two fights, right? His loss against O'Malley in his last fight, controversial split. Quite frankly, we thought he won. Then again, we were betting on him, so we were a little jaded. His loss to Sterling. Both losses to Sterling, mind you. Controversial. The first time was a knee, but he was winning the fight when it happened. Second time was a split decision. Some people thought he won. You know, just uh, it's been a rough go of it. You could initially look at this and say, okay, the guy's just, you know, bad luck follows him. No, it's just been bad breaks. You know what I mean? It's just been bad breaks. Since that time, though, it's been following him, right? His last fight, split decision loss. You know what I mean? He's a balanced fighter, good ground skills, a bit underrated on the ground, I think. His striking is so good that people forget how good he is on the ground. When I say good, I'm not saying he's elite on the ground. I'm just saying he's pretty good. He's serviceable, right? The only critiques that we have of him are, number one, tends to get off to a slow start. And here's a guy who's been losing fights by split decisions. Can he afford to be losing round one? It's our first concern. Second thing is finish rate. 
been to a lot of decisions, right? He's not getting the decisions, right? Okay, he needs to finish these fights. He had finish rate before back in the day, lower competition. If I'm coaching him, I'm telling him, the judges are going to screw you, dude. Do not depend on the judges. You need to go ahead and go in here and finish these fights. Good volume, lands 5.31 strikes per minute, and takedown defense is very good, 90%. His takedown defense is going to be tested here because we know Marab does one thing good, and that's wrestling, and he doesn't stop. He's got a high motor. He's going to test that takedown defensive number. But back to the point of the judges. If Peter Young wants to win this fight, he needs to go after a finish, right? For Marab, he's a wrestling-dominant fighter with a very high motor, good cardio. His striking is a bit all over the place, but it gets the job done. He, it's usually a distraction, like a mirage. Like, look at me over here so I can come and take you down. He typically throws big overhand strikes, again, as a way to distract his opponent. His entire game plan is predicated on getting takedowns and getting position control. Yawn again, 90% takedown defense. We're going to see what gives there. For Marab, he comes into this fight on a hot streak. He's won eight MMA fights in a row and hasn't dropped a fight in about five years. We have a few question marks, though, about him. First of all, He's a bit one-dimensional, lacks finishing ability. His path to victory usually includes control time, securing position control. It's not very exciting. It requires judges. Now, though Marab has been able to hurt some recent opponents on the feet, for example, Marlon Marias, who he knocked out, no offense, everyone's been knocking out Marlon Marias. Marias has been knocked out in seven of his last eight fights and about six fights in a row. Enough said. His win over Aldo, his last fight, looks good on paper. It'll... It'll stand the test of time. You could say he beat Jose Aldo, a former UFC great. That was Jose Aldo's last MMA fight. He's retired from mixed martial arts. So, you know, put that into perspective. You know what I'm saying? Now, we're high on Jan, but I think we're high on him for a good reason. He's a guy who's been through some shit. He's coming out the other side. I think he's been through all the bad decisions. I believe Marab is a good fighter. He is a good fighter. He's good in a lot of areas, not great at anything other than just holding you. But when it comes to striking, there's going to be levels here. And I believe the levels will be much higher for my man, Peter Yan. And he can keep the fight on the feet. Again, 90% takedown defense. Marab won't stop trying. Don't get me wrong. But his effectiveness at getting Yan down will go down as the fight goes on. And Marab starts to fatigue a little bit. In any case, don't let the tapology fool you. Don't let all that red fool you. Peter Yan is a very good fighter. And as I said before, in a different universe, far, far away. He's 19 and one and has only lost one fight and he's the current champion. Just consider that food for thought. The betting spots we like the most for this fight. This fight going over two and a half rounds because again, a little bit of a slow starter for Jan and Marab's got a good gas tank. It tends to be durable himself. He can get cracked. The fight starts round three. We like that spot as well. Jan on the money line as a confident parlay piece and then Jan into the distance. Not sure what that price tag is going to be when they come out. We'll make sure we update that. We'll, excuse me, update that in our newsletter. That's your breakdown, guys, for the main event of UFC Vegas 71. We'd like Peter Yan to win the fight by decision. That's our prediction. Okay, we're at the end of the episode. Let me give you a summary of our picks to win. This is also known as our quick pick segment. Starting at the top, we like Peter Yan by decision. Alexander Volkov by a round three KO. Nikita Krylov into the distance. Ricardo Ramos to win by a round three finish. Jonathan Martinez by decision. Vitor Petrino to win by a round one knockout. Carl Williams by decision. Davey Grant to win by round three knockout, a round one submission win by Sajikris Dumas, round two submission win for Mario Bautista. We like Aaron Lipsky to win by decision over JJ Aldrich, Victor Henry by a round three knockout over Tony Gravely, and the first fight in the car, we like Bruno Silva to win by decision. Those are your swift picks for UFC Vegas 71. All right, so for the fights in the car that we feel the most confident with, 
If you have access to our Excel sheet, and I'll explain to you how you do it, it's very simple. There's a link down below here that says a Google Drive link. It's like the second link, I believe, in the video description down below. That link takes you to our Google Drive page. What you'll find there is a plethora of resources, all entirely free, very easy to understand as well. When I refer to the data sheet or Excel sheet I'm referring to, that's a full sheet with like the records of the fighters, their background information, looking at their experience versus fighter IQ, cardio, finishing ability, striking ability, grappling. We compare all those different categories, the prop bets we like, and then maybe most importantly in that data sheet is the film library with about four or five links deep for each fighter for prior fights. If you want to save your time from looking around for film, the film links are there in our Excel sheet to access that Excel sheet and see all that data and see a, a, a basically a plethora of thousands of hours of work right there for you for free. The Google link is down below. So in our Google Drive, you're going to find the data sheet with our film library. You'll find individual fighter breakdowns where they're broken down individual fights, comparisons, side by side, pros and cons in Word document format. So you can download those work documents if you like. And then also in the Google Drive is our tip sheet. The tip sheet for the entire event can be found there. Also, the tip sheet can be found in our Substack newsletter. Have you heard about our newsletter? Well, let me tell you about it. The Substack newsletter is awesome, also free, easy to use. Substack, if you haven't heard, is one of the best platforms for delivering newsletters. There's an app for your phone. You can use the app on your phone to see the newsletters, or you can just check your email. We'll send out one email per week for the UFC event. That email comes in a newsletter format. It's a written breakdown of the entire full card, along with links to the video breakdown, the Google Drive, also a reminder that it's available via podcast, and then also a link to our data sheet. So that all comes via newsletter. The newsletter also includes the tip sheet. So you wanna to subscribe to the newsletter, it's absolutely free, whether you're a capper, whether you're just a casual fan, whatever your situation is that you like mixed martial arts, you just wanna get access to more information, this is literally hundreds of hours of information over the course of weeks, thousands, and over the course of a year, just hundreds of thousands of hours of research that we're putting into data that's available to you at the click of a button. So please take advantage of our Google Drive link that is down below and subscribe to our Substack newsletter. On that note, I'm referring to the data sheet right now. And so when there is a W next to a fighter's name, that obviously means we think they're going to win, but a W with an up arrow means we're super confident. So in the case of Victor Henry versus Tony Gravely, we're very confident in Victor Henry here. He opened up around the minus 135, minus 140. It's moved to minus 145, now back down to minus 140. We like him a lot here. No offense against Tony Gravely. He's probably the better grappler, probably the better wrestler, and maybe even wins round one. But cardio has been his Achilles heel. We think Victor Henry will have plenty of cardio, plenty of volume. He tends to weaponize that as a, as a weapon for him. And I think he's going to take over the fight at some point and even get a TKO. So Victor Henry at that minus 140 spot on the money line, a spot we're very confident in. Another spot we're very confident in, Ricardo Ramos. We think he is just levels above Austin Lingo. Lingo's coming off of a long layoff, knee injury, so on and so on. So Austin Lingo, we think is overmatched almost everywhere in this fight. So Ricardo Ramos, our second very confident pick. And then the main event, Peter Yan. Our only concern is just bad luck the guy's been on the on the bad side of a few calls and it's just been it's been a rough runs but decisions i think he won his last fight who cares what i think he ultimately got the l but we think that he is a much better fighter than marab we went through the breakdown on this marab is a good fighter he's a bit one-dimensional kind of sloppy looks for takedowns always grinds it out gets close wins that that's his path to victory peter yan is a much more polished overall fighter and should get the win so we like peter yan a lot the fights that we're not super confident on, but we're picking them to win. 
Martinez over Saeed Magomedov, Vitor Petrino to win over Anton Turkel, Carl Williams, and Aaron Olipsky. Those fights were picking them to win. Not as much confidence. The ones that we have medium confidence in, Bruno Silva, Mario Bautista. Excuse me, we have high confidence in Bautista. I should have rephrased that, but he's a minus 1,000 favorite, so kind of ignoring it because the reality is, of course, he's a high high favorite. Um, but medium confidence, Bruno Silva, Sajikrius Dumas, Davy Grant, Nikita Krylov, Alexander Romanov. Those are the fighters that we have medium confidence in. Before I wrap things up, We've had the pleasure of talking to Sadiqarius Dumas on multiple occasions. I had a chance to talk to him, you know, offline or off the air type of, you know, off the record, I guess. And then also had him on the show a few times. He stopped by through some live shows and we interviewed him. A tremendous background, very I mean, potentials through the roof. I am like fully emotionally invested in this kid winning. <clears throat> so for me, it's a little bit biased, right? But I hope he does well. It is his UFC debut. I want to see him make a big splash. So I'm a little personally invested in him, rooting for him to do well here and come out and get another finish. He's got very long arms. He's sneaky good with submissions. Pretty polished fighter. What does he do? We'll see what happens. He's got a decent matchup. He's got an opponent I believe he can beat. He's got an opponent who's coming off of a loss via guillotine. And that's something that um, my man SD Dumas does well. So shout out to SD Dumas. If he hears this, I'm hoping he does well. Hoping he gets the win. But that's your breakdown, guys, for UFC Vegas 71. As we mentioned in the beginning of the video, we fell off of our winning streak. We had five win five winning weeks in a row with UFC. That came to an end with UFC 285. We're looking to get back in the winning column with this card. Let's hope we got the right picks here. We'll see you guys soon. Thanks for stopping by, and, uh, and ciao. Ciao, Bella. Deuce.